Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Um, happy Friday. This is Danielle St. John uh, filling in momentarily for Sabrina while she deals with some technical Hello. Oh my goodness, these technical difficulties. I feel like I'm never going to get past them. I just still don't even know what went wrong this time. Uh, the prompt is supposed to kick on. I waited well past when it was supposed to, but um, I kind of just did it weird. I don't know. Maybe it's the weather here in Salt Lake. We're having a lot of cloudiness, but I just, I don't understand why I constantly am having these silly problems. It's a very simple program to use, so I do apologize. Please, Danielle, hello, how are you? Oh, and maybe she uh, was just calling to check. I think that's what she was doing. She helped me get set up. She's another one of our hosts on Seeds of Change. And so I waited again, waited a little bit longer than normal, but not as long as I'd waited, and the prompt came, so I was able to start the show. I'm going to look in and see if I can't find a blog talk radio tutorial or something. Danielle walked me through it really well. And like I said, it's really simple, but I still keep having these issues. So I'm going to have to do some different uh, research to see what is going on on my side of things. All right. So let's get into it. I'm really excited about some things that are going on with Collectively Rewilding. We have... All of the things that we're going to talk about today, and we will still talk about those. Unfortunately, since I've been sick for almost two months now, I wasn't able to participate in the activities that we're going to talk to. I'll have to wait probably until spring. We'll see. The weather's been holding pretty nice here in the Salt Lake Valley. I may still get some of it done as the winter is setting in. But what I really want to start off talking with you guys about today is where we're at in moving collectively rewilding forward as a community, as a platform, as a business entity. It's a big job to put together a business that has so many elements and get it started. And one of the things that I would like to promote and foster within the Collectively Rewilding community is to help other agricultural and natural-based businesses find their footing and get out there doing what they want to do. I would love to see more and more of us down here on the layperson's level taking some of that agricultural business back into our hands, which is such a big premise for uh, Seeds of Change, taking news, food, and health back into our hands. Well, food and health absolutely are covered within the agricultural spectrum, and I absolutely believe in that as well. So what I am doing currently to make this a real enterprise, uh, this radio show is a big part of that, and since it's just beginning, it doesn't have the traction that I hope it'll gain as we go along, but you got to start somewhere. And so 
when uh, Danielle reached out and asked if I was interested in doing a radio show, I took a deep breath and I said, okay, I'm going to do this and added another responsibility onto my very full plate. And that is part of what starting a business as a mom and pop level small business is. You are going to be busy. Try not to let that intimidate you. Simply try to prepare yourself mentally and physically. Do try to be as healthy as possible. I work on being healthy constantly. I started experiencing some pretty extreme allergies about five years ago or so, and I actually see my face shaping change. I'm not in anaphylactic shock or anything to that level, but I get so congested that the shape of my face and my throat and my neck all change a little bit because they're so filled with congestion. We'd already been working on our health in pretty strong steps because my husband has most likely MS. He's never gotten that official diagnosis. We're not a big fan of the modern mechanized medicine world. And so that's not something he's interested in. We take holistic steps at home in order to manage his symptoms. Uh, One of the things I think that's keeping us sick out here is we're from really sunny locations. Cortez, Colorado, San Diego, California, Las Vegas, Nevada, L.A., even Boise, Idaho. When I lived up there, I swear it felt like there was more sunlight in Boise, Idaho than there is here in the Salt Lake Valley. Certainly in Wyoming, there was more when we were living in Rollins. So we are all very used to the sunlight, and it is cloudy very frequently here in the Salt Lake Valley. And also, there's just something weird about the way they set up their structures. So many of the apartments and houses in this valley don't take advantage of the natural sunlight. So our last four years out here, none of our living situations let natural light into our apartment. We're making one final move before we again try to buy property, and that's just going to be to the upper half of this apartment that or this stick-built home that I talked to you about a little bit that we live in. So we're going to be on the upper floor, and there are actually windows in that domicile that take advantage of natural light. They're big enough. They aren't overshadowed by the roof too much. There's no trees blocking it. All these different things that we've dealt with while we've lived here in the Salt Lake Valley, and I'm really hoping that we'll start seeing our health improve because sunlight is so important. When I was a child or maybe in my teens or early 20s, I read that you need at least 10 minutes of sunlight or vitamin D a day. They've upped that statistic. I recently read that they've reevaluated and they say that you really need more towards 30 minutes a day. And I absolutely believe that. I think more is better. We don't want to go out and sunbathe for hours and hours, of course, either. There's a balance, but sunlight is so important. And these last four apartments that we've lived in, we've tried to keep plants alive in every one, and they had to have artificial light introduced in order to keep them alive. That's what we finally broke down to in this last apartment. In order to have indoor plants, we got artificial light. So those are all some really important pieces in being healthy. And while we do what we can with our food and our exercise, going outside, uh, participating as a family, which is our community. Uh, My husband does his disc golf, all of these things. We can't force sunlight to be where it isn't. And so I'm really hoping that last piece will fall into place for us.
and I'll be more consistent with all of these things. But part of what keeps me from being as consistent as I'd like is that busyness element in trying to build two businesses to some degree. And one of those businesses is Baby Steps. Uh, it's a large business. Collectively Rewilding has multiple elements. When you're building a business, you're generally going to be selling in a storefront, selling online, providing services or products, and that's going to be from one entity. So you have to find your customers. That's the element that you're really working for. With Collectively Rewilding, we're not only looking for our membership base, we're also looking for our content creator base. So it's a dual marketing prospect. We have some content creators with us. Misty Folds was with us last week as iEnergyWorks, iEnergyWorks.com. Anybody that's wanting to look that up, we have it prominently displayed, of course, in Collectively Rewilding, also in Collectively Rewilding Facebook page. And some other content creators who are intending and would like to produce content on the mom and pop level. What we're finding, though, is that those of us at the mom and pop level are spread so thin, they haven't been able to put in their content. So I have a business mentor that I work with through America's Small Business Development Center, or SBDC, Small Business Development Center. Jess Clifford works out of the Tooele branch of the SBDC here in Utah, and he and I have been working on changing the focus of my business. Originally, I had not even intended it for it to just be my business. There were a multitude of my colleagues and friends, acquaintances, fellow advocates and activists who had requested something like this get put together. So I had originally intended this to be more of something like a board, perhaps, whether it was for-profit or non-profit hadn't been determined, but I experienced or expected there to be a multitude of people placing their input. Life has been crazy for the past three years, so it doesn't surprise me that that sort of fell by the wayside. That means that I have to be ready to shift my focus, shift my business practices, intentions, all of these things, and that's what I've been doing over about the past six months, nine months, something to that effect, working on figuring out how I'm going to introduce other content creators when those who wish to simply aren't finding the time. That's where uh, all of this is shifted. We're going to go and look at gardening associations, um, 4-H clubs, FFA, things of that nature, and offer those who are already so much more invested in their day-to-day -day time in their agricultural pursuits. They will be able to more readily put content together and find the time to invest in it because they are already invested in one fashion or another in their daily lives. Along with that, we have to find some marketing capital. I already am handling the day-to-day -day business expenses of hosting the platform and being prepared for taxes and these things, but I'm not bringing in any income. So I need a funding base to get that marketing out there. So what I'm going to do is take a class on a subject that I'm horrible with, marketing and advertising, 
through one of the institutions that my business mentor, Jess Clifford, through the Tooele SBDC, is aware of. And at the end of these classes on marketing and advertising, which I lack so, so badly in, I will receive a $3,000 grant or grant-like opportunity to put towards the marketing and advertising of my business. I had actually hoped for more about $10,000, but Jess, my business mentor, thinks that we can probably get the things done that I'm needing to with about $6,000. And I'm going to be very upfront with you all about this process. I want you all to hear that there are challenges, but to hear that I'm also finding ways to overcome those. Yes, I'm spread very thin, and adding a move in the middle of Christmas while starting this radio show and having been sick is extremely stressful, but it's all something I want. Nobody is telling me I have to do this. I don't have a boss looking over my shoulder telling me what to do or what to say or how to do it. I have a collaborator with my business mentor, with Misty Folds, with some of these other folks that I do get to talk to who will eventually, hopefully, find the time to put their content up in Collectively Rewilding, such as Rain Grant from the Colorado Mushroom Company. She is so busy doing just as much. She has two basically separated enterprises as well. She has the Colorado Mushroom Company, and that is foraging and gourmet mushroom cooking. Uh, I believe that she teaches people how to grow mushrooms as well as produces kits for people to grow their own mushrooms. She's branched out so much since I lived in Colorado where I was able to talk to her more consistently and just continues to grow. And then she's also out in the holistic psychedelic mushroom field promoting so many different venues, huge get-togethers, just beautiful pieces that she puts together. She's an artist and a musician. She's tremendously busy. Very understandable that it's hard for someone to find the time to come in and add another piece to their plate. So with FFA, gardening associations, these sorts of things, they're already going to have multiple P2 draw on. They're already going to have setups and backdrops and props and all of these pieces. It'll be much easier for them to find a footing adding another piece than someone in my shoes trying to do their paycheck job, possibly be a parent, a spouse, a child to someone, maybe they care for their parents. We're all so busy these days. But I want you to understand the process so that when you're ready, whoever you are, to put your business together, that while you understand it'll be challenging, you'll know those challenges can be overcome. And so while I was initially looking for the $10,000 mark, we're going to go for the 6000 So getting a grant or grant-like opportunity for 3000 with that such needed instruction in marketing and advertising is halfway to our goal already. Uh, one of the things I was considering doing was going to an investor. Rather than taking out a loan or continuing to invest more of my private funds, I was going to approach an investor. Uh, there are several different locations that I was aware of due to my paycheck job where my quick draw editing services, that's my primary business and the one that I make money off of currently, works for Let's Go Help, a secondary online community that I am dealing with. And it's all about the grant hunting world. Well, I knew about these investors and I went and looked and they ranged anywhere from $49 a month or was it 59? It was 49 or $59 a month to $249 a month. 
And that, again, would have to come out of my own pocket. So I went to Jess first, my business mentor, and talked to him about it. And he said, nope, don't worry about doing any of that right now. If we ever have to, it'll be a great opportunity for us to explore in the future. But right now, we have this class. And there's also possibly some investors here that I know of that may be willing to do this. And you can meet with them without having to pay for a service. So you want to be talking to someone when you're starting your business. The man I work for, Matthew Lesko, many of you know him from commercials back in the day, question marks all over his suit. One of his ideologies within looking for grant and grant-like funding is getting these SBDC mentors from the America's Small Business Development Center. And I've had one for now approaching four years. It's definitely into the fourth year, and it has been invaluable. So I can't speak highly enough of the small business development centers that are out there. Once we go through all of that, I'll still continuously be looking for funding. There are several different possibilities out there right now that I am working on. And I can never remember. Let me go and look up this industry. For some reason, their name will just not stick with me. Um, I fund women. So it's for female entrepreneurs. I fund women, IFW. I'm filling out a grant application there. I just have one more piece. I've got to put together something for my YouTube channel for Collectively Rewilding to add to that grant application. And that'll be ready to go. There's also a grant that I've applied for previously that Misty Folds brought my attention to again this morning that I need to probably go and try it to put in another application in there uh, at Amber Grant, the Amber Grant for Women. And I think it lasts for three months. There is a small fee, $15, I believe. $15, you're entered into three or four different grant-like funding opportunities, and your application remains current for, I believe, three months. Really great opportunity for female entrepreneurs out there, both of those, I Fund Women and the Amber Grant for Female Entrepreneurs. And I will be working on both of those. So those are all some things that are going on with Collectively Rewilding that I have been able to pursue while I've been sick and not able to go out and act the garden. But let's go ahead and get into the areas that I would like to hopefully get to some of before the snow sets in really heavily. With us moving so regularly, last year we moved in in October, and I was hoping to get the garden measured before the spring so that I would be ready to go. It never happened. I was hoping once again to get it this fall. That is one of the things that I really need to get accomplished that is something that can be done when we can't actively work with growing things in these colder areas where many of us live. Again, the soil hasn't frozen. So I'm really hoping to do some of the pH testing that I've been wanting to do for over a year now. And I have some simple tests that I would like to do that involved more um, hands-on, not the chemicals or sending off these panels, things of that nature. There is the peanut butter jar test. Find out what kind of soil you have. Healthy soil typically consists of 20% clay, 40% silt, 
and 40% sand. This should take about one hour to set up and a full day to conclude. This test that is getting ready to be discussed, uh, find an empty straight-sided jar. So you don't want to get a Coke bottle. It needs to be a straight-sided jar, such as a peanut butter or mason jar, with a lid, and have a ruler handy. Dig down to root level in your garden, right, about six inches, in the area that you want to test, and remove enough soil to fill the jar to between one-third and one-half full. Next, fill the jar to the shoulder with water, then set the jar aside to let the soil soak up the water. Put the lid on the jar and shake it hard for about three minutes. Set the jar down and look at your watch. In one minute, measure with that ruler that you have the amount of sediment that is collected at the bottom. This is the sand in your soil. So it's going to be the heaviest. It's going to settle the quickest. Wait four minutes more. Measure the sediment again. The difference between the two numbers will be the amount of silt in your soil. Then you need to wait that 24 hours, take a third measurement in 24 hours. The difference between the second and third number will be the amount of clay in your soil. Calculate the percentages of sand, silt, and clay, which should add up to 100%. Nice, loamy soil will be 20% clay, 40% silt, and 40% sand. This simple test can help you to decide what to grow. If your soil is high in sand, it will be well draining. Silt and clay are hard to get wet, but they stay wet. Plants that like wet feet, where there's just always a little bit of dampness in the soil, would be happy here. Choose your plants accordingly and or amend the soil. And then it goes into some ways to do that, but today we're focusing more on the test. Soil health. The earthworm test. I'm so excited to say we saw our first earthworm come out of the soil. This was such disgusting soil, as I've mentioned more than once. And I've been looking all summer and fall long to see if maybe I've brought enough health back to the soil to bring in some worms. And we finally saw one. I was so ecstatic. All right. So the earthworm test. The best time to check for earthworms is in the spring when the soil's temperature has reached 50 degrees Fahrenheit and its surface is moist. Use a shovel to dig up about one cubic foot of soil. Put the soil on a piece of cardboard, break it apart, and look for earthworms. If your soil is healthy, you should find at least 10 earthworms. If your soil has fewer than 10 worms, add more organic matter, compost, aged manure, and leaf mold. Organic matter improves structure, slowly releases nutrients, and increases beneficial microbial activities. All right. So those are some really excellent ways, one that you can kind of do at any point in the year, one that they're recommending do more in the spring. I would not have even bothered with this in the beginning of spring had I been set up enough to do these tests because I knew I wasn't going to find probably a single earthworm in a cubic foot of soil. I do believe that we have a pretty good draining soil, but I know that when I do my full pH testing, it's not going to be a very pretty situation. And I do have a full pH testing kit here. I haven't gotten to try it at all. I really just feel like we got moved into this apartment and now we're moving up to the second apartment. 
Oh my goodness, so much to do all the time, right? All right, so this is another test that I may still be able to pull off this fall, and it's called the squeeze test. One of the most basic characteristics of soil is its composition. In general, soils are classified as clay soils, sandy soils, or loamy soils. Clay is nutrient-rich, but slow-draining, but has trouble retaining nutrients and moisture. Loam is generally considered to be ideal soil because it retains moisture and nutrients, but doesn't stay soggy. To determine your soil type, take a handful of moist, but not wet, soil from your garden and give it a firm squeeze. Then open your hand. One of three things will happen. It will hold its shape, and when you give it a light poke, it crumbles. Lucky you. This means you have luxurious loam. If it doesn't go through that process, it may look like holding its shape, and when poked, sit stubbornly in your hand. This means you have clay soil. Finally, if it falls apart as soon as you open your hand, this means you have sandy soil. And I think that that's what I'm going to find more towards is a sandy soil here in Magna, Utah, where we are considered, I believe, high desert. Okay. Now, they talk about the percolation test. Okay, this one was entirely new. I've never heard of this test outside of this article. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. The percolation test. It is also important to determine whether you have drainage problems or not. Some plants, such as certain culinary herbs, will eventually die if their roots stay too wet. We had that happen at our last apartment here in the Salt Lake Valley. They overwatered so badly, and it was right next to the river, the Jordan River, so the soil stayed so moist that there were actually boggy patches throughout the garden uh, and lawn area in this apartment complex. So when I tried to, draw, uh, to grow some very basic wildflowers and things like that, they drowned where they were. It was very sad. So you want to know about your soil's drainage. You also don't want to overwater because if you overwater, Constantly, no matter how good your drainage is, you're going to start seeing some swampy patches in your ground. All right, so to test your soil's drainage, dig a hole about six inches wide and one foot deep. Fill the hole with water and let it drain completely. Fill it with water again. Keep track of how long it takes for the water to drain. If the water takes more than four hours to drain, you have poor drainage. It wouldn't have even gone down the first time I would have done this. If I would have known of this test and tried it out in that apartment complex, I think that the water would have had trouble draining the very first time it got filled. Then they talk about the worm test here as well. All right, so those are some really basic simple things that I'd like to do before the fall sets in to test my soil. I also do want to run a pH test, and um, I have all of the chemicals for it. Like I said, I got this neat little in-ground tester that's very basic, and it lets you know the sunlight, water, and pH. 
not the nutrients, just the pH to alkali or acidic, neutral, whatever it may be. And again, I just haven't had the time to make use of it. That's why it's so easy to understand when the other mom-and-pop level content creators I have interested in collectively or wilding are having so much trouble finding time to do this. All right. The uh, obvious next step after measuring and testing your garden when it's not time to already be planting is the garden planning. I love planning gardens. I have probably planned 75 more gardens than I've gotten to put in the ground, but it gives me a good idea of what I want to do when I do actually get to put my hands in the soil, depending on where it is that I'm living at that current time. When I was younger, I began saving seeds. This was before there was a lot of talk about expiring seeds. I have many, many packages of seeds that don't have an expiration date, which is unusual for today. If you go out and purchase seeds, almost all of those seeds, unless they are from a cottage-style shop, are going to have an expiration date on them. Now, I believe that there are definitely those seeds that will quickly become non-viable, um, some of the more delicate seeds, things of that nature. But they also have seeds from beans, admittedly a very strong seed, and corn, again, a very strong seed that they have almost resurrected from the Anasazi peoples here in the Four Corners region of the United States. So if the seeds have good solid casings, I still believe that a good number of those older seed packages that I have are going to be viable. However, one of the things that I'm going to do, since I am renting and this isn't going to be my permanent property, the older seeds I have are also not labeled if they are non-GMO, uh, heirloom, open pollinated, things of this nature. So while we're building life back into soil that isn't our own, we're going to use up all of my older seeds. So I'm going to get into my seed and, oh my goodness, it's huge. It'll take me days to go through it properly, plus I'll be playing, right? But I have seeds back from probably around 1996, 1994, maybe even a few from 1992. Oh, my gosh. I'm totally giving away my age, aren't I? Again, I'm pretty open about that. I'm not scared of being 45. But that gives me this huge range already of saved seeds. The reason I started saving seeds is that my grandmother, who was born in 1913, crazy, had always saved seeds. She had an entire little dresser in her mudroom, as we would call it today. Then it was just the laundry room. It wasn't any special room. And there was a little dresser in it filled with pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds and cosmos seeds, broccoli, onions. Oh, my goodness, right? just filled. And that's what she used every year. And she didn't talk about her seeds going bad. So I think that I'm going to find a lot of viability in these older seeds that we're going to use this coming year. But I'll let you all know. One of the things that I'm going to be focusing on in my planning is going to be including a lot of pollinator. Uh, what's the word I'm looking here? Um, 
pollinator friendly gardening. I had quite a bit of it this year. Uh, my cosmos did not do well, but that is a good one for bees. We had herbs, but again, I wasn't letting those flower. So that's going to be a little bit limited supply. The rest of those that I put in for the bees, they just loved it. They love the alyssum, especially in the spring. Bees, honeybees, um, especially, they are crop animals. So they pick staple crops that they go to throughout the year. So even though my alyssum reseeded itself and put out a new flowering for the year, the bees almost completely avoided it the second time around. It was really interesting and really validating to have this book that I'm reading. And I would pick it out for you guys, but I've already got it packed. Uh, it's a really great book that my mother purchased for me for my birthday about beekeeping. The one negative about it is the gentleman is in, I believe, Sweden. So he's covering it from a very different geographical region. Um, still really valuable. And I am just learning so much about these beautiful creatures. Part of my pollinator planning, though, is not just going to be for honeybees. That's what we think of so readily when we think of pollinators. Maybe some of us also think of butterflies and moths, uh, some of the more fun bugs that are pollinators, but wasps and hornets and all kinds of little critters are actually pollinators. One of the things that you can do to promote those kinds of pollinators is to provide them with little areas where they can make their homes away from your vehicles, away from your houses, provide them with a more natural location. They call them bug hotels. They're really cute. They don't need to be cute, though. They need to just exist for these pollinators. So if you have the time or if you want to go out and spend a ridiculous amount of money on one that's a little bit costly, certainly they can be cute, but they can be done very quickly and very easily by getting some dried bamboo wreaths and cutting them up into about uh, three or four inch sections and then you need to hollow them out. Uh, you'll want to verify this because I can't pull my book out to double check it for you, but I believe it was about three quarters of an inch that you wanted to hollow out one side and then the little guys will make their homes inside those little hollows and you need to make sure that the wood is smooth or it can give them problems. It's not too deep or it can give them problems, some things like this but create some environments around your yard where it would be better for these little guys to live than, you know, in that car that maybe you don't drive as often and then you go and open up the hatch and there's a beehive. That's not really what we're looking for. Generally, it's going to be like a wasp's nest, a paper wasp is very common that you'll find in a vehicle. Uh, yellow jackets and hornets, I believe, both like to... One of those might be a ground dweller, but they also like to make their homes in the walls of buildings. And that's not what we want, but we need these, these little guys out there pollinating our plants. So we need to make other areas for them so that they can live happily next to us, not causing us problems, not completely degrading their habitat and having those pollinators available going into the future. Such a big, big deal. All right. It's not something that I can really share with you without a visual, but I did want to let you all know about a really neat 
um, free garden zone planting chart put out by Kellogg Garden Organics. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still feeling a little under the weather. Let me try that again. Kellogg Garden Organics. And it's not Kellogg like we think of um, frosted uh, cereals or something. It's a gardening company. And they have these amazing zone planting charts. And it's going to be at https colon forward slash forward slash www.kelloggarden.com and then you go and look for these planting charts. Um, you can also go forward slash zone dash your zone dash vegetable dash planting dash chart dot pdf to pull those up. But if you go to KelloggGarden.com, you should be able to readily find these planting charts. And that will really significantly help if you're not already familiar with your planting zone. Uh, that will get you all good and ready to go. Also be aware that the USDA recently updated the zoning maps. I guess they do it about every 10 years, and they did just release a new variation. And there are some changes with what we know as um, the changing of our environment, no matter which side of the spectrum you may be on. There's always up and downs in the environment, and we are definitely seeing changes right now. They have updated that zoning map. All right, everybody. We're going to get an entirely new artist today, and that is Homestead and Chill for our little break. And we're going to cut it in half. She has a really excellent piece on composting, and uh, that's a little bit like what we're talking about today. So I wanted to play this for you, but it is about 22 minutes, so we're going to break it up into two pieces. If I can get down to where I need to be here in our clips and find this particular one, we'll get that started for you. Really excellent material. Oh, goodness. I guess I didn't upload it. Let me upload it. It just takes two seconds, and we'll play that. And I'll just keep talking with you guys while we do that really quickly. Um, there are a lot more natural content creators out there than when we began Collectively Rewilding. There were so few content creators out there at that point, and now there are so many. It's really exciting. That's one of the best things about the ideology behind Collectively Rewilding because what we're actually doing is to promote other natural businesses. There's no fear of a million more coming onto the market. Anybody that wants to come and participate can simply have a more dedicated platform. And so it's really exciting to see all of these amazing new opportunities for learning a different variation of how to interact with the online or for the online with the natural world. I'm online trying to find this that I should have already uploaded and, uh, Oh, a description. Oh, my goodness, you guys. I want to start 
recording these so that you could see what I'm doing while I'm hosting these radio shows. And it would have been really neat if I would have been set up for that. And you could see how easy all of this is, even though I screw it up, it is very easy to do. And that would encourage more of you. And who knows, maybe we'd have some people approaching Freedomizer Radio wanting to host their radio show. It's really that easy. It's so wonderful. Blog Talk Radio that hosts Freedomizer Radio is very user-friendly. I wouldn't go so far as to call it quite intuitive, but with just a little bit of instruction, you're really going to be able to find your way around readily. And so I'm very grateful that Danielle offered me this opportunity. It was just an amazing, amazing thing for me to branch out with what I'm trying to do here. And now let's see if this is going to work since I uploaded it while we're in. Learning, learning, always learning. Oh, darn, it's not going to. Okay, so let's see. If I come over here, though, I think I can figure this out, you guys. Don't quote me, but I think I'm going to be able to. Let's search now. And if not, I'll just have to play some of our clips from before. But I was really excited about playing this one for you. So, no, I'm not finding it. Okay, let's see. Maybe I can find it over here. I think if I come over here, I can still do this. And by that, I mean to a different screen and where I was able to refresh it. I didn't want to refresh it where I'm coming from, but that's all a part of this learning on this radio show. It is all a new venture, and that's what I really want to encourage everybody to think about because I believe so many of us, have natural skill sets that not everyone around us does. And if we don't share those with each other and with the next generation, we may lose them entirely when we need them again the most. So let's go ahead and listen to the Composting 101 by Homestead and Chill. Hey guys, Deanna Cat here. So I am here today to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects. If you guys have been following around for a while, um, you'll know that uh, we love worms here on this homestead. And I think a lot of you guys have been really eager and interested in learning how we vermicompost, which is the name for composting with worms, here. So I'm here to talk to you about our method of composting with worms. There's a lot of different types um, of worm compost setups out there that you can use. There's what they call worm towers that are kind of those stacking units. Um, some people like to use those, but I'm here to show you what we do um, and how we've been vermicomposting for over 12 years now, and it's a really simple method. Really all you need besides the bedding and worms, which we'll talk about, is a simple tote bin, um, like a plastic storage bin, and that's it. So it's really simple, it's effective, um, and so we'll talk to you about how we set up and maintain a bin like that today. Um, we love composting with worms here. It's a great way to divert some of our kitchen waste and some of our garden waste. Um, they create castings. These are the finished castings here. And don't worry, I'll show you a close-up of all of this too. But these are the finished worm castings. We call this black gold. It's basically what we owe a lot of the vitality and life force in our garden to. Um, it's 
their poop, basically. So the worms will break down and decompose food waste, but also their bedding. This is rehydrated cocoa core here, or newspaper. Um, these are the kind of materials we're going to put in the bin with the food waste, along with a little bit of dirt um, from, our, from our yard for grit for them. And they just churn and eat through all of that and poop out flat gold. And it is a readily available um, nutrient and well-balanced fertilizer. It's a soil conditioner. It helps promote good aeration and drainage in soil, and it's just really, really great stuff. In addition to adding their worm castings directly to our garden beds, we also make aerated compost tea with their worm castings, which I'll talk to you guys a little bit more about um, in a different video and different posts. Um, so that said, this is all meant to go with a blog post, so I'll write up more of these details and show pictures too. Um, so this is meant to complement that. So to get started, the materials that you're going to need um, are, one, your container. So this is just a really basic storage tote. Um, this is a 35-gallon size. And when you're choosing a container, you want to get something that's nice and heavy, dirt, heavy duty, it's nice and sturdy. Um, we got one that has a lid that can clip on. You know, it's kind of a good idea so that rodents and things don't get in there. You want something that's fairly durable. On that note, make sure that your, that your chosen container doesn't have any holes around the top of them. A lot of the, the storage containers we've seen these days have little holes around the edges, and it can actually allow water intrusion to get inside, and you don't want that. We actually aren't even going to add drainage holes to this, so I'll talk to you more about that in a second. But make sure you have a nice, solid lid, um, and then your size is going to vary depending on your needs in your garden and how much, you know, kitchen scraps and stuff that you have. This is a 35-gallon again. Um, we've had all the way up to like a 50-gallon tote, which is pretty big. Um, we never actually fully filled it. Um, and you can go down as small as probably I'd say like a 15-gallon if you had just maybe an apartment. And we have composted even in, when we were living in apartments before. So this is something that can be used anywhere, no matter where you live. Even if you don't have a garden and you just want to divert your food waste from the landfill, um, you could turn it into compost and just, you know, give it to friends that do have yards, you know, whatever you want to do with it. Um, so probably no smaller than a 15-gallon. Um, you want to get one that is not transparent, so you don't want clear plastic. So this is just an example because I'm going to show you guys the cocoa core that's in here. Um, worms like dark. They like to be buried. When you add food to it, you bury it. So you want to make sure that it's a dark bin um, so that there's no light that can come through. So that's it for the bin. Um, we have drilled holes. If you can see, there are air holes that we drilled with a quarter-inch drill bit all the way around all the sides. Um, that's just for air for them but we actually aren't going to put any kind of drainage holes in the bottom here. Um, contrary to popular belief, you do not need drainage when you properly maintain a worm bin. Um, you control the moisture in here by how much food. You don't want to add really, really wet food, and if you do, you want to add more browns and dry stuff every time you feed the bin. So that's where like the paper comes in. So by maintaining it a nice, even moist consistency, um, kind of like the consistency of a wrung out sponge. So they like moisture, but worms breathe through their skin, so you don't want it to be overly wet and soggy. Um, so we usually only add just a little bit of actual like water from a hose if it seems really dry. But otherwise, a lot of the food moisture in there keeps it wet enough for them. Um, and so if you add drainage holes in the bottom, they're going to leak. The worms are going to just go out the holes out of the bottom. Trust me, it's happened before. Um, so we don't need drainage holes. We don't want to capture any extra liquid. People sometimes think that the hole or the liquid that comes out of a worm bin is worm tea. It's not. No offense if it's something that you try to utilize. It's not um, microbially active. It's usually anaerobic. It's c considered a leachate product. Um, and so when it's a leachate like that, it's it's not the stuff that you really want to use in your garden. I mean it won't necessarily do any harm, but it could have gross bacteria in it that you don't want. Um, so again, a, a, 
properly maintained warm bin will be a moisture, a moisture consistency that doesn't have excess water that needs to drain out of it. Um, when we make warm tea, we actually brew their, their um, castings, kind of like tea, and put that in a bucket with water and aerate it and bubble it and get it all full of life. So it's not the same as the liquid that would maybe drain out of an overly wet bin. So no drainage holes, air holes, whatever container you think fits your size and needs. Um, probably no more than 50 gallons, 15 gallons at minimum. Um, and you want it to be, this is a little bit deep, it doesn't need to be this deep. Um, worms will usually stay kind of more, the, more towards the surface anyway, so that it doesn't need to be much deeper than this guy. Um, so that's the bin. And then bedding. So this is the kind of material that is called bedding. It's the brown material that's going to go into your bin with the worms. So we have hydrated cocoa core here. Um, it comes in a brick. I wish I still had a, a one to show you here. but. It comes in a hard condensed brick and we rehydrate it. Um, so this is about a five pound brick. We actually had a 10 pound brick that I cut in half. Um, so five pounds to go in this, um, and it's five pounds when it's still condensed. It's a lot heavier now that there's water in it. Um, but five pounds is what we're gonna put in the 35 gallon so you can kind of um, gauge and adjust how much you might need. Um, other bedding materials besides cocoa core that we use are shredded newspaper. So we're gonna add that in there as well. And then as I mentioned, a little bit of our sandy soil um, from our yard. If you have clay soil, you might not want to add it. It's a little bit sticky, um, but they need something with any kind of other soil. You can even add potting soil if you need to um, for grit, and that helps with their digestion. So we're just going to add um, a good little scoop with that as well. So this is the material that they live in that you're going to bury your food waste in. They actually also eat this material, though. So even though it's called bedding, um, they eat it too, and they, they kind of blend it and break it all down with their food. Um, other materials that can be used are leaves, dry leaves, and cardboard, but you want to kind of rip up the cardboard a little bit for them to munch on, and any material that you add to your worm bin, you do want to try to break it up a little bit smaller. Um, they're just going to be able to break it down that much faster. Um, so there's bedding, and then the worms. So I'm not going to pull them out quite yet. I'll wait until we do the close-up of that, but we got a pound, this is about a pound bag or about a thousand worms. Um, from Uncle Jim's Worm Farm, so we're going to add those in once we get their bedding into the bin. Um, but the worms that are used for composting are red wigglers, or Yasinia fetida, I think is how you pronounce it, um, and they're amazing little creatures. So just a little fun fact, they um, can eat their body weight in food per day. So if we're starting with a pound of worms, they can eat a pound of food in a day. And so um, when you're feeding your worms, and we'll talk a little bit more about what to feed them and not um, in a moment, but when you're feeding them, that means that they can eat um, about a pound of food a day if you're starting with a pound of worms. But you want to not give them too much food. So you judge it based on about what they can eat in a week. Because if you put too much food in there and they're not breaking it down, it can get stinky and get anaerobic and it gets gross. A healthy, well-maintained worm bin will not smell bad. So that said, you can even keep these inside a house. I had somebody tell me the other day um, on Instagram, that they were hiding a little worm bin underneath their sink counter and their husband didn't even know it was there for like three months and then he discovered it under there. That's how discreet and non-stinky they can be. Um, so what we usually do is feed once a week and then after about a week you can assess how much they've eaten. So if there's still a bunch of leftover food, you're like, okay, maybe I need to scale back a little bit because you don't want that food sitting in there and really rotting and getting gross. Um, if you go back in a week or even less than that and there's like no food left and they devoured all of it, then you're going to want to start to feed them a little bit more. So you'll kind of find your right balance based on your worms um, because they will decrease and increase in activity based on temperature as well. So speaking of that, um, you can worm compost in a variety of climates. 
Um, we've lived everywhere from Chico, California, with crazy hot summers, um, and in Providence, Rhode Island, while I was in grad school, um, with freezing, freezing winters. And we've been able to successfully warm compost or vermicompost in all of those locations. There's just some extra measures that you need to take. And I go into a bit more detail about that in the blog post, but basically, they will be the most active and most happy at about 50 to 85 degrees. Um, they'll slow down in their activity below 50, and they'll slow down a little bit when they're too hot. But the sort of um, like danger zone for them is above 95 degrees and below freezing. But keep in mind that is the temperature that's actually in the worm bin. The worm bin itself insulates itself a little bit, and if you keep it in the shade away from like some temperature extremes, it will usually be you know a few degrees more warm or cold, like more comfortable than the outdoor air. Um, so if you want and you live in a more extreme climate, you can get a compost thermometer and actually monitor the temperature of the warm bin and bedding material itself, not just the outdoor ambient temperature. Um, so just a couple quick quick tips. Again, I'll talk more about it um, in detail in the blog post, but quick tips, keeping it somewhere in the shade where it's not getting direct sunlight. Okay. We'll see how that goes when I try to put it back because I thought I could just pause it and then play it from where it was, but apparently it doesn't work like that. So if I'm going to break things up, I may have to do that manually. And that's going to require talking to someone else because I am definitely still learning about this program. Now, let's talk a little bit about storing and preserving our harvest. And we're going to just pull up an article, something I know quite a lot about, but I'd hate to misspeak and say, put this by this and don't put this by this and have it be incorrect. So big, big deal stuff is how you store your food temperature-wise, right? Uh, different vegetables need different storage co uh, conditions. This is from an extension publication by the University of Minnesota, I believe. Let me just double check. Yes. Okay. And so there are uh, three combinations for long-term storage. You have cool and dry, which is 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit and 60% relative humidity. Cold and dry, 32 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 65% relative humidity. Cold and moist, 40, uh, 32 degrees to 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 95% relative humidity. Back in the olden days, many people had cold storage, and that's how you could keep your fruits and vegetables in a cool and dry 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, 60% relative humidity pretty easily. It's a lot harder for us in our modern living situations if we don't have that root storage or cold storage to keep that particular setting. There are some things that you can do. Perhaps you have a non-heated garage. That's usually going to be around 50 to 60 degrees, at least towards your house if it's a connected garage. If it's a separated garage, again, it's probably going to be as cold or nearly as cold as the outer temperature, so a little harder. But when you have a connected garage, if you have a basement, especially in, as we had up in Wyoming, we would keep some of our fruits and vegetables, our root vegetables and things like that in our basement. Those are some possibilities. In uh, this upstairs unit that we're going to be moving to, there is actually one 
storage room, it's not a bedroom, it doesn't have a window that has a basement level, and it could be used as a storage for our food, but instead, my husband's going to turn that into a very dark sleeping room for himself, and it's going to be wonderful, but that is the kind of room that could be utilized for this specific style of storage. 32 to 40 degrees, that's very comparable to your refrigerator. You want to have your refrigerator uh, down to at least 40 degrees, maybe a little bit colder. So that is very easily attained. And if you want it dry, you just don't add moisture. If you need it moist, add a damp paper towel is a very common recommendation. Okay. And so this article goes over all of these different vegetables in detail. And it's all posted in Collectively Rewilding. But let's go over some of those that maybe aren't as common. So asparagus, how would you store asparagus? First of all, it's saying that you don't harvest asparagus until the third year after planting when spears are six to nine inches long. Store in cold, moist conditions. So this is when it's going to want one of those damp paper towels and keep it upright during storage. But it doesn't say like some of the herbs or green onions, some of those. It's not telling you to keep it in a little bit of water. It just says moist. So just that wet paper towel, not like a cup with a little bit of water. Basil. Harvest when leaves are still tender. Store at room temperature. Keep stems in water. Basil will discolor if kept in the refrigerator for 10 days. The expected shelf life is five days. So you may be able to keep it a little bit longer, but it's going to discolor if you put it in the refrigerator. Uh, let's see. What's another good one? We all have carrots, but how many times have you actually discussed storing them? Harvest when the tops are one inch in diameter. Store in cold and moist conditions without their tops. Very interesting. I would never have thought that carrots would have been one of the vegetables that would have liked to have that damp paper towel. Perhaps that's why they split. And the expected shelf life is eight months. Well, boy, we must be getting those carrots when they're quite old then. Or perhaps adding that paper towel will really increase our ability to keep our carrots longer. How about eggplant? Now, that stuff goes bad so fast. Harvest before the fruit's color dulls. Store in a cool spot, not in the refrigerator. It's staying in a cool spot. So if you have that 50 to 60 degree temperature space. Um, in a perforated plastic bag. Storage in the refrigerator is also possible for a few days. So that's why our uh, eggplant goes bad so quickly. Eggplants develop uh, pitting, bronzy, uh, bronzing, and pulp browning if stored for a long period below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. The expected shelf life is one week. And we don't generally get quite a week. We probably get more like four, maybe five days. So perhaps if we find that location, we do have an attached garage in our new unit, perhaps we'll find a location out there and our eggplant will last a little longer. Oh, right, so onions are a good one to go over because onions require separated storage. Oh, darn, and it's not opening up for me. Let's see why not. There we go. Okay, harvest when the necks are tight and the scales are dry. Interesting. So let's just look over what the scales are. The necks are going to be as the plant greenery comes into the root of the onion itself, right? But the scales, I would guess, 
are the paper leaves of the onion, but let's just make sure. The scales of an onion bulb are a modified type of leaf. The one layer cell epidermis of onion scales is commonly used as a model experimental material in botany and molecular biology. Interesting. It's not really giving me a very good definition. What are onion scales? I just can't find an answer on this. I'm thinking it is the paper of the onion. Now they're talking about it being like transparent. Onions that are peeled to different depths and are exposed to heat stress show that only the outer scales form the dry brown skin. It's just not going to give me a great definition. Hmm, I'm gonna to have to do some research onto that. Let me just write that down over here and I will try to have a better answer for you next week. Let me try one more question. Let me ask if onion scales, the paper portion of the skin. See if it gives me a better one. The scales, food reserve leaves, hmm, form the bulb of the onion. So the whole bulb is the scale, I guess. Interesting. I've never heard that term. <laughs> I didn't like onions until the last five or ten years. So uh, definitely something there to learn. The scales are dry. It would have to be that outer portion of the onion, you'd think. Store in dry and cold conditions, so that's very easily attained. Cure at room temperature for two weeks to four weeks before storage. Do not freeze, and the expected shelf life is four months. Now, they're not going to talk here about keeping it separated. So let's actually go into a different article, because I'm not as impressed when they don't even discuss that at all. Here's one from Farmer's Almanac. And I bet you they give us a little bit of something about not storing certain things together. And that's what I'm really looking for here. And they're not going to talk about it either. Oh, that's frustrating. Okay, here we go. Store onions and potatoes separately. Onions and potatoes complement each other nicely when cooked up. However, when it comes to storage, they don't play well together. It's best to store them separately in a spot with good airflow. Both onions and potatoes release moisture, which can lead to faster spoiling. Onions also emit ethylene gases, which can cause nearby potatoes to rot more quickly. Garlic, however, can be stored alongside onions. Just be sure to keep the papery outside of your garlic intact until you are ready to use it. And then it's talking about why you need to grab an apple when storing potatoes, because apples produce a different type of a gas as they are essentially decomposing, right? Keep potatoes from sprouting. To keep potatoes from sprouting, store them with an apple. 
The ethylene gas emitted from the apple inhibits the sprouting process and helps the potatoes last longer. So storing some things together and storing some things separate is a big part of it. Okay, let's see what else they have in this article. They're talking about more about how to prepare and uh, store your harvest, like making ice cubes with herbs in them. This one talks about putting flowers. Uh, flowers, excuse me. It says treat them like flowers, um, meaning keep harvested herbs such as mint, basil, and cilantro in a glass of water like a bouquet of flowers in the fridge. Place a plastic bag over the top to help balance the moisture. Too much moisture can cause your herbs to become slimy and wilt, while not enough can cause them to dry out. Most herb bouquets should be refrigerated. However, basil should be stored on the kitchen counter where it can get some sunlight. Alternatively, you can loosely wrap your hard, woody herbs, such as sage, rosemary, thyme, and oregano, in a damp paper towel and place in a sealed bag. The paper towel will keep them just moist enough to prevent them from drying out. Very good to know. All right, let's check out another one of these articles. Seven Ways to Preserve Your Garden Harvest Forever Food. All right. Canning is pretty uh, common. We already know about most of these. This is a little bit more uh, complex and produces some really desirable results. Boost your probiotic, probiotic intake with lacto-fermentation. A traditional method of preserving foods is through lacto-fermentation. If you've had traditionally prepared sauerkraut, then you've had a lacto-fermented food. No dairy is involved in this process. A very easy way to ferment veggies is to fill up a mason jar with fresh, clean, healthy veggies, then fill the rest of the jar with a saline solution made from a ratio of one quart of filtered water to three tablespoons of quality sea salt. Fill the jars, then leave them on your counter, taste them after around five to seven days, and then taste them each day until they are done. You may need to burp the jars every few days as the pressure builds up during this process. Then you can move them to cold storage. I have to admit that one is a little bit nervous making for me. I definitely need to try it. I don't really have the uh, most advanced palate when it comes to soaked nuts or seeds or um, using vinegar for anything other than pickles. <laughs> which is what they talk about next. Soak up the vinegar. When you hear that someone is pickling vegetables, it most often means they are preserving them in vi uh, vinegar. Because of vinegar's acetic acid content, it should be at least 5%. Many sources say that food preserved in vinegar doesn't need to be refrigerated, right? So there's probably contention and they're probably protecting their liability, all this wonderful fun stuff. You can also use up fresh herbs by placing them in vinegar, then allowing them to sit in the dark for up to two months. At that point, you strain the vinegar to remove the herbs and have a wonderfully flavored vinegar that you can use in dressings and more. You can also pickle, and I don't know anything about that process. As I said, I'm a little terrified of it, but it is a very healthy, old-fashioned way of storing food that produced additional benefits for your health. All right, some really excellent stuff there. 
the biggest part of what we're going to talk about today is the planting and maintaining of trees in the fall. Not every plant, bush, or shrub has to be or would be better off planted in the fall, but that is a good time for most as they're going dormant, so there's less damage. So first of all, let's talk about some of the different plants for the different regions. Um, many times we neglect our highest elements or mid-range elements in our landscaping. When you cut out or have very minimal shrub, bush, and tree or taller uh, cacti in desert settings, you actually lose value in your soil. The overall biomes, when they're natural, exist on multiple layers, starting in your soil, working its way up through the topsoil and the ground cover into low-lying, mid-range plants, and on. Depending on where you're at, that canopy may be a very high canopy, or it may be very low and minimal, such as in the desert. But having none will actually do uh, a disservice, at least, to your soils. So for the Northwest region, some of the common types of medium to large parts of our canopy are Western red cedar, red alder, big leaf maple, cottonwoods are everywhere. There are definitely Northwest cottonwoods, Douglas firs, Pacific dogwoods, grand firs. Now, this one is a fun word to say, but I'm not actually sure of what this uh, type of plant is. Achillea millifolium. Let's just see what that looks like. Yarrow. So that can get relatively tall. Oh, I want to say three feet, perhaps. So it does provide a good height to your ground. Hemlock, milkweed. Milkweed can get pretty tall, I think up to about five feet in some instances. Shore pine and Oregon crabapple. And crabapples are very common for a reason that many of us may not know in such a modern age, they have a really high pectin uh, count, which made them ideal for canning jellies and things that you needed to um, gel, right, that you needed to firm up. All right, so now the southwest region, the Joshua tree, right? We're pretty familiar with that as a term here in the Southwest, the saguaro, alligator juniper. That's a new one on me. I wonder why it's um, different from the traditional juniper. Okay, definitely a little bit more corrugated uh, bark. Seen those before, but they're not as common as the juniper that I'm more familiar with which may be the Utah juniper, another juniper. Junipers are just very um, beautiful trees if you can handle imperfection. They are not generally going to be uh, 
symmetrical as a lot of trees are. There's a lot of twisting and warping. This is the juniper that I am more familiar with. It has a very papery bark that just shreds. You can just pull it off. And I played with it all the time as a child. Just love this stuff. It's beautiful trees. It's like I said, you don't need perfection in your um, plant life. All right. So our uh, southwestern barrow cactus, that's definitely a very common medial, uh, middle range part of your canopy, as is the desert prickly pear. A lot of trees and things that I'm not quite as familiar with, and this is my region. And that, I think, is something that we'll find many times, because we're familiar a lot of times with plants that aren't actually from our region. And so this is the screw bean mesquite, and I've certainly seen examples of mesquite, but I'd not heard of screw bean. And it looks like this has a very distinct structure to their seed pods. Um, I may have seen this once or twice. I'm thinking that this is probably very common around the Arizona areas there. And very interesting looking seed pods. A lot of fun with that plant for sure. The coast redwood, the desert ironwood, yellow palo verde, very fun tree. Of course, the yucca. Now they're calling something a banana yucca. I've not heard of that specific term. Let's see if it's just a more specific term or a little bit. Okay, yes. So these, um, I saw these a lot in California. And they have bean pod looking uh, seed pods. They're very unusual. I guess almost more like a, uh, oh, goodness, a coyote squash. They almost have that sort of a bottom, but they're more elongated. And that's the fruit, the seed pod there for these style of yucca. Very distinct yucca that I have seen in California. Really neat plant. All right, let's head down into the southeast region. So they have the red maple as well. The eastern redbud, mm-hmm, that's a beautiful tree, I think. The American beech, I'm almost completely unfamiliar with the trees on the east coast, right? I've only heard of them. Uh, the American beech and the eastern blackened walnut, which I'm sure is one of those that you have to watch out when you're composting, as I believe it puts off a natural pesticide. It's definitely not good for your general composting. Southern Magnolia, we've certainly all heard of that. American Holly. Now, I had thought that Holly was a smaller plant. Let's see what structure this has here. Okay, so it is, um, looks like maybe a bush. It's an evergreen, and it's calling it a tree. So I had thought that those were lower lying. Very interesting. Really pretty bright, bright red berries and dark red, uh, dark green foliage, just like you would expect out of a holly. Beautiful plant. All right. A longleaf pine. American chestnut. Swamp white oak. How fun. And then in your northeast region, 
white oak and northern red oak, red maple, river birch, those big solid trees, American beech, sugar maple, Norway maple. Those are some that we're worried about with the climate change and pollinators and all of this. Maples, where we get our maple syrup and um, brown sugar from, they are having trouble with this climate change. Uh, scarlet oak, common persimmon, eastern cottonwood, of course. Again, the flowering dogwood, American elm, black cherry, sweet pepper bush, eastern hemlock, black locust. How interesting. So all of this is going to be put up for you in Collectively Rewilding. Anyone that wants to come in and see the list for their region, these are uh, native plants, and they can really help us to take back our understanding of what it is that's best for our regions, because we see so many of these crossing regions. We have, in my uh, renting yard here example, is a Siberian elm, right? I would much rather see a native plant if it were up to me. I do have a few for Hawaii and Alaska. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the first couple there, but plumeria for Hawaii, candlenut tree, coconut, rainbow eucalyptus. Oh, those are so beautiful. I've not ever seen any in person, but oh my goodness, they are so beautiful. Hibiscus, and just so many that I wouldn't even dare to try to pronounce. Indian almond, noni, a melee apple, breadfruit. Very neat. Very, very neat. The different types of trees that we hear about when we really look at all of the areas of our country. And finally, for Alaska, we have the Sitka spruce, the western hemlock, quaking aspen. That doesn't surprise me. Theirs is a black cottonwood and a mountain hemlock. Thimbleberry. I wonder what that looks like. Thimbleberry. It makes you think small, right? Let's just see. Oh, it's beautiful. It's uh, almost like a raspberry. So that's going to be more of a bush or a shrub. Really beautiful little berry. Okay. Prickly wild rose, salmonberry, alpine forget-me-not. So those are all going to be lower. Uh, we have the Rocky Mountain maple, lupinus articus. I wonder what that looks like. Let's check that out. That should be some sort of a tree there. No, uh, duh, lupine. I'm being an idiot. Your brain shuts off when you're doing live streams. I promise you, struggling to gather words and talk about something is a little bit um, difficult when you know that you have the all these components going on. So it's a lupine, like a Colorado lupine. There's variations. It's very strong and uh, big, big flower pods on it. Beautiful plant. Let's see. Yes, yeah, so a lot of those that came up in the Alaskan that are going to be smaller. So we all know that there are definitely trees up in Alaska. We've got the lodgepole pine, the creeping dogwood, that sounds more like a bush or a shrub, the felt leaf willow, but a lot of what came up for that area was 
smaller parts of the canopy, the red alder, pink wintergreen. That's an interesting name. Let's check that out. See if that's a tree or a shrub, some sort of an evergreen there. Okay. Looks like it's a low-lying evergreen. Very pretty pink flowers. Almost looks like a bleeding heart. Similar color, a little bit comparable in structure. Very pretty plant. So all of these are there for each of these regions. All of these are going to be native and something to consider when you're putting together a native plant area in your yard. Do always research each of these pieces, though. Not being from these regions, I can only do the research and verify it. I can't walk out and know these trees. Only for the southwest region do I have direct experience. So that's why research is so important. I will say that about my own every time. Anything you're reading from someone else that you didn't do the research for yourself, you definitely want to verify before you put it in the ground, before you put it in your mouth, whatever the case may be, right? All right. Now, let's go into an article about planting trees from the Old Farmer's Almanac. Learn why fall is the best time to plant trees. Excuse me. From a tree's point of view, fall is an excellent planting time, even better than spring. Many nurseries dig bare root plants in the fall, sell some, and store the remainder through winter. Such plants are fresher in the fall, and the selection is better. Here's everything you need to know about choosing and planting a tree. Why plant trees in the fall? Perhaps most important, fall planting allows a tree plenty of time to establish its root system before winter. Roots begin growing as soon as they touch the moist earth and continue to do so as long as the soil temperature stays above about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Then, when the first warm breath of spring finally coaxes the growth of new shoots, the fall planted tree is in place, its roots already growing in the soil. The soil is usually more fit for digging in fall than in spring too. In the fall, summer's warmth lingers long enough to keep the soil moist, not sodden, and crumbly for much of the time, just the right condition for digging planting holes. Plus, if you're in an area that gets a lot of snow, you won't have to deal with all the snow melt or the resulting mud if you plant in the fall, meaning that spring is the other more uh, appropriate time to plant trees, bushes, shrubs, but it's not as ideal as fall. When buying trees for your space, you have a few different options in terms of what kind of nursery-grown tree you can get. Bare root trees, which were discussed above, are grown in the field and then dug while they are leafless in either fall or spring. Fall drug trees may be sold immediately or stored with their roots packed in moist material. Root loss during digging is a drawback. However, these trees can be easily and inexpensively shipped, giving you a wider selection if you can't go to a local nursery. And because you can see the roots, you can easily assess their condition. Bare root trees also tend to be the cheapest option because they are the most lightweight. Container-grown trees. They spend the first part of their lives in pots. The potting mix is lighter than field soil, so such plants can be shipped economically. Ideally, the plant spends enough time in the container to allow its roots to fill it. Watch out, though. 
Some vendors buy bare root trees and pot them up for quick sale as container plants. Equally bad are container-grown trees that have been left too long in their containers. If possible, slide a container-grown tree out of its pot to see if it's root-bound, i.e. the roots are thick and tangled. Restrain yourself from buying the largest tree possible. It should be no taller than three to four times the height of its container. Bald and burlapped trees. I had a really interesting experience up in Idaho when I was going to BSU, and we planted a couple of trees on the campus, and they were large enough to be um, put in with a forklift. It was really neat. The balls were huge. They were probably close to three feet, at least two feet, two and a half feet in diameter. And the trees themselves weren't very tall. I want to say, oh, maybe a little bit taller than me, somewhere between five and six feet. Really neat to get to be a part of that. So bald and burlap trees often have been dug from clay soil, the removal of which uh, might lead to root loss. Thus, such a tree is lifted with a ball of soil that is then wrapped with burlap. Clay soil holds together better than lighter soils, but it is also heavy, so the weight and the delicacy of the root ball make mail order shipping of these trees unfeasible. It was definitely from a local nursery when we put the tree in up there in Boise. They must be bought locally in most cases. Plant selection is therefore more limited. The weight also makes it harder to plant these trees yourself without the use of machinery, depending on the tree's size. We definitely had several um, land crew members there from the Boise staff, as well as a forklift to plant these trees. It was a delicate process, and we needed people that knew what they were doing and had the right equipment. So yes, these can be very heavy. How to plant a tree. Finding the right planting site. Pay attention, uh, <coughs> pay attention to the tree's need for sunlight and soil drainage. No amount of care can make up for a gross mismatch. Check the soil. If it is ready for digging, it will be just moist enough to crumble. If the soil is not ready, wait for it to dry or water it. Okay, so if it doesn't crumble, right? If it's gonna be dusty or sticking together, heavily, it's not the right time. Mark out the proper hole. New roots establish more quickly in a hole that is roughly twice the diameter of the root ball and no deeper than necessary to let the tree stand at the same level as the surrounding soil or higher if the tree is to be planted atop a mound for proper drainage. The base of the tree shouldn't be uh, lower than the surrounding soil level as water will pull around the trunk potentially leading to rock. Remove the sod if planting in grass. Cut the surface vegetation with a shovel or grass edger, then work a flat-bladed shovel or sod stripper beneath the vegetation and lift it off. If you're planting in an established bed that already contains a layer of mulch, scrape away the mulch from the planting site before digging the hole. Lay down a tarp to place the soil on. Once you start digging the hole, you'll need a place to put the dirt. Lay down a tarp or plastic sheeting so that the soil doesn't get into your lawn. Dig the hole. Taper the hole from ground level at the edges to the full depth at the center. Rough up the sides of the hole to break up any glazing from the shovel blade that might slow root penetration. So when you're digging that hole and you see those really smooth um, edges to your hole, you don't want that. That is what they're calling glazing. 
and you need it to be porous and textured. Prepare the roots. If the tree is bare root, cut back to healthy tissue any roots that are damaged or blackened by disease. Also, shorten any lanky roots that do not conveniently fit into the hole. Shovel some soil into the hole to create a mound on which to spread the roots. Throw another shovelful of roots on, uh, another shovelful onto the roots to steady the plant. If the tree is container grown, slide it out of the pot. Untangle and splay out roots that outgrew the pot and were first to grow in circles. Shorten any that are too long. If the roots are too tightly bound to untangle, make four one-inch deep slices from the top to the bottom of the root ball. Loosen the large roots and tease out smaller ones. If the tree is bald and burlap, slide it right into the hole, being careful not to break the ball. Cut the string binding the burlap. Cut the string binding the burlap and peel the wrap as close to the base as possible. Natural burlap will decompose, so some scraps can be left in the hole. Synthetic material can strangle the tree, so cut away at it to remove as much as possible without disturbing the ball. Fill in around the tree. Use a stick or your fingers to work the soil up against and in among the roots. Soil shouldn't be packed in too tightly as this can make it harder for the roots to find footing, but there also shouldn't be any air pockets. When the hole is about halfway filled, spray down the soil with water to settle it. Wait for the water to soak in, then continue filling. Mulch. Spread a three-inch layer of wood chips or straw over the bare ground to within a few inches of the trunk. So you don't want it to actually touch the trunk of your tree, but when you see these manicured areas and there's no mulch over a good two, two and a half foot circle, that's not good. That leaves all of that soil exposed. No, you don't want it pushing up against your tree, but you don't. Also, you also don't want cubic feet of soil exposed to degradation by the weather, okay? This will insulate the roots to keep them from uh, growing long into the fall and prevent freezing and thawing that leads to heaving, moving of the soil and things, right? Note that mulch can cause crown rot. To avoid this, pull the material up to, but not right against, the trunk. Protect the trunks from bark-feeding rodents that sometimes winter in the mulch with a cylinder of a quarter-inch mesh hardware cloth or wrap them with paper or plastic wraps sold for this purpose. Remember to remove them in the spring. Trunk wraps make great homes for insects in the winter. Stake if necessary. Really try not to have to stake. That is not a natural process. Things don't have stakes where they grow. You want that plant to be strong enough to support itself wherever possible. And going towards more native plants is going to allow that to happen a lot more readily. Plants that are 10 feet tall or higher and trees at windy sites should be staked for a year until their roots grab firmly to the soil. Use soft material or pad of wire where the support touches the trunk. And so then they're saying even after a year when you do have to stake, you want to remove that. That's the whole point is that plant should be able to structure itself. If it doesn't, it's going to stay weak and never gain its own support structure if you keep it constantly staked. Water well and maintain. Slowly slope the ground beneath the tree. Plan on one gallon per week per square foot spread of the roots. Water throughout the end of the growing season and longer for larger trees. Keep the mulched area free of weeds, adding mulch as needed for at least a few years. 
water well, and admire your work. So some pretty common practices involved there. Also some uh, explanation for why you see that mulch pulled away from the trees, but that there should be mulch within an inch and a half, two inches, at least by three or four inches. You want to see some mulch or some sort of ground cover over your soil, not bare exposed ground cover. Oh, it just makes me cringe seeing exposed ground. All right, let's go and play with this composting 101 and see if I get to choose to take it back to where we were. Oh, and I apologize, we have a caller. I was away on the article. Hello. Who are we speaking to? Oh, goodness. I'm not sure how it works, or maybe they're not sure how it works. So we're going to go ahead and mute that, and I will see who that was that called in, if I can figure that out. And let's try this composting 101. Hey, guys. Deanna Cat here. So I'm here today to talk it to you does about look like we're going to have to listen to it over, so I don't want to have to do that. that. Let's pause that, and let's just go ahead and listen to MI Gardener's ancient composting method, so at least we can hear a finalized method, and I will try next week to figure out how to break up that composting 101. We'll probably play the whole thing again, but at least it will be completed. Thank you, everybody, for your patience while I learn the technicalities of hosting this radio show. And again, I do that transparently and publicly with no hesitation to show you my mistakes because when we're expanding a horizon, going to make mistakes and it doesn't have to be the end of the world, we can simply recognize it, learn from it and move on. And that actually is a great thing for your audience to see. People really love it. It really humanizes us and enables people to laugh off their own mistakes a lot more readily. So let's go ahead and hear MI Gardener's ancient composting method. What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another very exciting episode right here on the MI Gardener channel. In today's episode, I'm going to be hopefully teaching you guys about a method of composting that is very simple, very convenient, and it's very effective. So I'm going to explain the rationale behind it, and it's called trench composting. Let's go. So as I said, the name of this method is called trench composting. And as the name would imply, we're gonna be composting in a trench. Now, you've probably seen where people dig a trench and they put things like their food scraps and uh, you know, uh, stuff from their kitchen into a, into a trench and it breaks down, feeds their plants throughout the growing season. That is a method of trench composting and it works great. But this is at the end of the season when we have stuff like our, our squash plants here. You might have corn plants bunch of bulky material that you don't really know what to do with. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take out all this material. We're just going to chop it out and remove it from the garden. So it's done producing for the year. We got a lot of squash this year. It was a great year for, uh, for our zucchinis. And um, so we're going to chop it all up, get it out of the garden. Once we've done that, we're going to move on to the next step of just digging a trench. So in gardening and agriculture, there's a term called closed loop. Now in a closed loop agriculture or a closed loop garden, it basically means that all of the resources that it took to grow that crop are kept on site. 
if you have to go to the store and buy fertilizer or go to another farm and get cow manure or anything like that, that is an outside resource, outside of your loop. And you can think of your loop as just a little mini ecosystem. And so in our garden here, this garden, this bed, could be a closed loop or an open loop if I have to bring in more compost to amend the bed. Um, I also could uh, have our whole garden be open or closed, right? Um, do I have to make compost off-site? Um, do I have to bring fertilizer from, uh, you know, from the store or compost from a compost facility? Those are all resources I'm bringing back in to amend my soil to grow my plants. And by trench composting, you're actually closing that loop as much as possible because the amount of nutrients that these plants used to grow with was a ton of nutrients. And yes, we did harvest some fruits. We harvested some, we harvested some zucchinis and took them away from the bed. That is nutrients that will never be returned back to this bed. But these plants, if we took them off and we composted them in a compost pile, there's a certain percentage of that compost that would get wasted or lost through a process called leaching. So in a compost pile, because we don't have a basin underneath the compost pile to catch all of the what's called leachate, that is basically all of the nutrients and uh, good stuff that comes from a compost pile. Because we can't capture all that leachate, it's going to just soak into the ground. And that leachate carries with it nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, trace minerals, and things like that. And that's why the perimeter of your compost pile grows so well. The grass is really green, the weeds just thrive, and that's all the nutrients that are being lost. Yes, you're going to be capturing probably about 70-75% of the available nutrients in your compost when you break it down, but the remaining 20-25% is lost. And so um, e even if you were to take all of that squash, all the squash plants, compost them over here, you'd then have to have, in a perfect case scenario, 100% um, of what's composted taken back over there to, to result in the same exact result as what you're going to be getting with trench composting, which is amazing. You're actually saving 100% of all of what would normally be lost here by doing it over there. All right, so next part of trench composting is, as the name would imply, we need a trench. So we're going to dig down about, I'd say, I don't know, 8, 10 inches or so. The, the depth doesn't really matter quite as much because by spring, all of this will be totally broken down anyways. The worms are going to have some good food throughout winter. And because we're digging down you know, more than about four or six inches or so, the soil should stay mostly thawed. Now, obviously, depending on where you live, that's going to vary. I find that the permafrost, that the frozen layer of soil in our garden, typically extends no more than about six inches. So I like to go down about eight to 10 inches. And then that way, it stays thawed so that you know, worms and bacteria, even during the, the coldest weather, can still be working on something, even if it's slow. So I'm digging down about eight, 10 inches deep, and I'm just going along the length of the bed that I'm gonna fill up with my material. So as I was digging the trench, found this little buddy. These are the things that are gonna be doing all the work for you. These worms are gonna be doing all the composting of all this material, as well as other soil bacteria and microbes and fungi and all that other good stuff, they're gonna be breaking down this material right here in the raised bed. So the next thing you wanna do is make it small for them. They don't want all this material to be nice and big and chunky and bulky. They want it smaller. The more surface area you have, the smaller it is, the faster they're gonna be able to break it down. So we're just gonna take it, we're gonna beat it up a little bit. Take out your aggression on the world. Or aggression for the world, I should say. <laughs> All right, so once you are 
totally out of breath and absolutely gassed. It's also like 85 degrees out, so bear with me. But once you get it all chopped up, we're gonna take all this material and load it into the trench. So I know what you're probably thinking. Luke, wait, you're not gonna throw all that in the garden, right? That squash had powdery mildew. And if you thought it had powdery mildew, you'd be correct. But why am I still throwing it in the garden? Well, because I don't really care. The reason why is because powdery mildew is a soil-borne fungus, just like early blight, late blight is for things like tomatoes. I'm not worried about it because it's a soil-borne fungus. It comes from the soil anyways, meaning that it came from the soil, so I'm just returning it back to the soil. And I'm not too worried about it because in healthy soil, you're going to have a balance between good bugs, bad bugs, good fungi, bad fungi, and things like that. So I'm not too worried about it at all, about it, because I know that it's going to balance out in the end. And chances are, it was already there to begin with, so it's not like anything's really changing. So the final thing we have to do is just cover it up. This is crazy how easy this is, because I didn't need a wheelbarrow, I didn't need to do anything. I just pulled it off, chopped it up, threw it back in, and it's done. So now all of those nutrients that were taken from the soil that was put into those plants, all the leaves, the roots, the stems, everything like that, any, you know, any flowers, immature fruit, anything like that that didn't get harvested and taken out of the garden, it's all going to get returned back. Now, will I have a complete closed loop system? No, I won't because I did harvest things like zucchini, so those are in my belly. And because of that, I am going to have to return some nutrients back to the garden, but I'm, have to, I'm going to have to return far less than I would have to had I just taken all of this and thrown it out at the road or composted it somewhere else and used the compost in another bed, right? Also, what I'm returning to this bed is soil, right? I'm re-amending this garden with more soil so that I don't have to fill up with as much compost in the spring. And that is a lot of work. So it also saves a ton of work as well. And the final thing is it's feeding those beneficial, uh, those beneficial insects and beneficial bacteria in our garden right in the bed where I want them. So it's keeping them alive, give them some food for them to, uh, to feed on throughout winter. So there's a lot of benefits to this. I highly recommend trying it. It is awesome, and uh, you really can't go wrong. So uh, try this with anything as well. I know you're probably going to be asking, is there something I shouldn't do this with? Not really. Do it with corn. Do it with squash. Do it with tomatoes. Do it with absolutely anything that's a pain in the butt to have to carry over and compost. Now, would I do this with things like grass clippings? No, nah, I really wouldn't. I would definitely compost those. Would I do it with things like mulched up leaves? I might. I might consider. But those are also just as good in a compost pile because they can break down a lot faster when blended up with things like grass clippings and other uh, high nitrogen containing ingredients. So I may or may not do that uh, in this bed, but it's a wonderful composting method, one that I just wanted to share with you guys. So hopefully you found it enjoyable. Hopefully you all learned something new. If you did, make sure to hit that like button, subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll catch you all on the next episode. All right, grow bigger. Take care, bye. Freaks, outsiders, weirdos, the wallflowers, Oddball, loser, fish out of water, speak up, talk quieter. We are different. There's no arguing. It's a fact. A patchwork of flaws, we grow and adapt. We're funky, unconventional, see life through kaleidoscope eyes. In a field full of clovers, with our four leaves, we bask in blue skies. Flaws are natural. Our imperfections, our weaknesses, our scars... There is a misfit in all of us. We just have to be brave enough to embrace who we are.
Hello, everyone. All right, so I was just checking out one of the ads for Misfits Market. It did never say Misfits Market, so let me just say that for you, Misfits Market. Also, I think Misfits Market has become Imperfect Foods or vice versa. We've used both of those, and while they didn't end up working out for us, they were really great options, and we really support the overall idea. We actually use something called bountifulbaskets.org, and it's a really a neat co-op that's available uh, throughout many parts of the United States. It's not available everywhere, but it is uh, comparable. So those are all really great options. I, like I said, I think Misfits Market became Imperfect Foods, but either or, really great ways to save produce from going into the landfills. They weren't the most economical options involving produce, but they weren't outrageous. They were a reasonably comparable uh, situation to your grocery stores or markets. And the food was really varied. I did appreciate that and being able to select what I wanted instead of um, having it selected for me as bountifulbaskets.org works. So there's give and take to all of it. Uh, but definitely, if you're interested in eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and keeping them out of the landfills, Imperfect Foods, Misfits Market, both excellent options. Let's just see. I'm pretty sure that uh, Misfits Market became Imperfect Foods. No, Misfits Market acquired Imperfect Foods. Let's make sure that's what it actually um, is going to. Yes, so it is still Misfits Market. I had it backwards. Imperfect Foods has joined Misfits Market, which is really interesting to me because Misfits Market is a Utah company. So really great and something definitely to check out. I highly encourage checking out Misfits Market, as well as BountifulBaskets.org. Uh, neither one is available everywhere, so it's good to have options there. All right, we do have some folks who are trying to call in. We're trying to get that worked out. A uh, couple of colleagues that I work with over in that community that I'm always talking to you about that deals with grant and grant-like opportunities. They are uh, interested in what we're doing here as well, and Tammy Larson actually does post things occasionally over in Collectively Rewilding. She isn't really pursuing a business. She is revitalizing her property in, uh, I want to say it's San Bernardino, California, and she's up in the mountains there, and she's looking into all of the different options that she has for native, xeriscaping, definitely drought-resistant plants for her area up there. So hopefully we can get that figured out if they give it another try. All right, now what we're going to do is talk about the care of specific types of plant, uh, excuse me, trees. So fruit trees are different than evergreens, are different than palms, right? There are some differences to maintaining these types of trees. And so this is not what I was hoping it is. It's actually better than what I was hoping it is. It goes into all the different kinds of trees, but that's not really what we were wanting for here uh, in our show. Let's see if any of them are going to give you 
this is kind of more what I'm looking for. Oh, nope, they're videos. Okay, so that's not going to work, but maybe we can use some of these for our little breaks. So we'll have to check that out. Maybe that'll work. All right, let's go into this by Food Forward. I think this is a little bit more what we're looking for. I set all of this up, of course, well over a month ago for a show then, and so I'm not as versed with some of the materials as when I first put them together. And so they're talking about in Southern California, but fall still is appropriate there. So always that fall season, you're going to hear about it over and over again within trees. That's the best time to not only plant trees, but generally to do things like trim them or uh, any of these kinds of things. And they say, you know, in Southern California, of course, they can plant trees anytime from fall through the spring. Still, though, if you give them all of the winter, even though it's warmer there, it's still going to be better for their establishing of their roots and things. Um, so it's going to talk about that right now. Trees need time to establish roots to cool themselves down during our summer heat. So it's never a good idea to plant in the summer months. We say fall is the best time to plant because when we plant a fruit tree in fall, we get the maximum amount of root growth, which we've already talked about, right? All right. So they're saying it's a little bit of a tricky business. Make sure you do it right. The right tree for the right place, right? If you want to grow uh, fruit, make sure there's enough exposed soil in the root zone, the area under the canopy for now and also for the future as the tree grows. Absorbent roots, those responsible for taking water and nutrients from the soil, will not grow under gravel, decomposed granite, concrete, or any other hardscape. Grass and any other vigorous ground cover will steal nutrients from those absorbent roots. So you need to keep root zones clear if you want that nutrition in your fruit. The root zone should be mulched with woody mulch at all times. The best thing to feed a tree is a tree. Start your roots off right. It's going to talk about digging the hole, but we've already covered that pretty well. And then keep it clean and simple. Well, I was hoping more for talking about uh, trimming the tree and some things like that. So that's going to probably be very comparable to deciduous trees. So let's head over to arborday.org website on tree care trips, tree care tips and techniques. Okay. Short flowering trees don't clash with overhead tree lines. That's something to keep in mind that hasn't really been discussed. Definitely you want to look not only at your ground, but at where buildings are, where uh, power lines are, where there's shade, where there's sun, drainage. All of these things are especially important when you're planting a tree. When we first started our gardening here on this property, we didn't know what the light was going to be throughout the summer. We moved in in October, so we didn't know the light patterns yet. And I put out quite a few plants in some areas that I hoped I knew what the light pattern was going to be, and it didn't work out quite that well. But it's not that big of a deal when you're talking about some wildflowers. If you're talking about a tree, the amount of money and time that you've invested, you want to make sure you're putting it in the right space. So I wouldn't have wanted to plant a tree in our first year here. you got to learn that property before you decide on something like a tree. Large deciduous trees on the southeast, southwest, and west provide cooling shade in the summer, but don't obstruct the warming winter light. An evergreen windbreak to the north blocks cold winds in winter. So some really good things to think about. And again, though, if you have that windbreak, you want it to be far enough away that it doesn't block light from coming in at all. That's what we're finding here in Utah, as I brought up a little bit, is there are many times trees planted to keep any light from coming in 
all the way around the domiciles. Really hard on people inside those homes. Uh, they talk about the same basic idea, bare root, bald and burlap, and container-grown trees. Additional consideration when purchasing a mature tree include a strong, well-developed leader or leaders in a multi-leader tree. So your um, trunk there, I'm pretty sure, but let's just double check. What is a leader when growing trees? The main trunk with trunk, which grows upright in the center. So some trees, as you know, have multiple trunks right all there together on just one tree. Or there is, a, like for an oak or a beech or a pine tree, there's one, and those are called leaders, a central leader. And let me just check and make sure we don't have any colors, and we don't. Bright, healthy bark. So it doesn't really matter what color it is. It needs to be bright within that color. So if it's a white bark, if it's a dark brown bark, it's still going to be bright in its coloring if it's healthy. Trunk and limbs free of insect or mechanical injury. Branches well distributed around the trunk, considerably smaller caliper than the trunk, right? If you've had problems growing your trees and the trunk is smaller than some of the branches, it's not probably going to do very well. Ideal spacing between branches, at least 8 to 12 inches for most species. Good trunk taper, meaning that it's wider at the base and begins tapering as it goes higher. Wide angle crotches for strength. So when your trees split off and have their leaders become multiple branches to support outlying branches, you want to make sure that all of that has a strong crotch, as it's called, where the two joints of the tree meet together. Otherwise, you're going to see breakage, right? Low branches. They are temporary, but help develop taper, promote trunk caliber growth, and prevent sun damage. So when you have gardeners that come in and remove all those lower level kind of short, scabbier looking branches, they're actually removing the sun protection from that tree. So that's not really what you want to see. Okay, and they talk about mulching and not doing too much. Watering newly planted trees. For new trees, as we discussed, water immediately after you plant a tree, usually 30 seconds with a steady stream of water from a garden hose with a diffuser not a nozzle per tree seedling is sufficient. So you want to get it really good and wet, but you're not overwatering it. 30 seconds of a good constant stream. During the first two years, um, it's going to be growing a lot. So it needs a lot of energy. You will want to, during the first few summers of your new tree's life, give it a little bit more water. You can make it easier for it to deal with heat and drought by providing water and covering the soil with wood chip mulch. Deep watering can help seed the root establishment. Deep water consists of keeping the soil moist to a depth that includes all the roots. So that's where you want to go deeper than something like 30 seconds. You need to judge by your soil, your temperatures of soil, all of these different things. There's not a general or standardized rule, but they're letting you know 
when you planted that tree, you had a good idea of the root development. Of course, it's spread now, so you want to keep that in mind, but you want to get all of that garden pretty wet. Um, I know a lot of people like to use drip irrigation for their trees so that it's not this tremendous amount of water output, but you're just getting it a little bit more and more wet until it's solidly wet in the soil surrounding your tree roots. How much water and when? Not enough water is harmful for the tree, but too much water is bad as well. Overwatering is a common tree care mistake. So you really want to get it good and moist throughout all of your roots, but it, you don't want that standing water. They had at the first apartment that we lived in here in Utah, they overwatered as well. And we had three different trees fall over while we were living there for a period of about two and a half years. That's ridiculous. Please note that moist is different than soggy, and you can judge this by feel. A damp soil that dries for a short period will allow adequate oxygen to permeate the soil. You can check soil moisture by using a garden trowel and inserting it into the ground to a depth of two inches, and then move the blade of the trowel back and forth to create a small narrow trench. Then use your finger to touch the soil. If it is moist to the touch, then they do not need water. Drought tolerant species. Much of the West deals with drought these days, more and more it seems like. If your area constantly deals with drought, you will want to consider trees listed as drought tolerant. They have the Arizona cypress. I don't recommend things that are Japanese, Velcova, white firs, probably indigenous at least to the American continent, and then a Kentucky coffee tree. Well, if you're in Kentucky or the surrounding region, probably that'd be great. I don't recommend bringing in non-native species. I read an article recently that talked about the fact that our nurseries are driving about 80% of the um, in spread of invasive species that we see. And I absolutely believe it. They are worried about that bottom dollar always and what's trending. And so they'll sell these non-native species and it causes a tremendous amount of problem. So I really encourage looking into native species, if at all possible. On the other hand, if you live somewhere where there's a lot more moisture on the east side of our uh, country, especially towards those coastal areas or Great Lakes, on the opposite side of the spectrum, if your area deals with a large amount of moisture or wet conditions, here are a few trees that will do better in wet conditions. Bald cypress, shellbark hickory, red maple, silver maple, paper birch, river birch, and weeping willow. And there I'm not seeing anything stand out at me as being non-native. Those all sound like a lot better choices there. Oh, right. This is what I really wanted to get into. Pruning. Let's just check and make sure before I start. A uh, big, long spiel here. No callers at the moment. Pruning. Proper pruning technique is important for a healthy tree. They have animations. Again, all of this is posted in Collectively Rewilding for anybody who wants to take this further and watch some tree pruning videos. But when you want to prune, this depends to a large extent on why you prune. Light pruning and the removal of dead wood can be done anytime. Otherwise, below are some guidelines for the different seasons. Winter pruning. Pruning during dormancy is the most common practice. It results in a vigorous burst of new growth in the spring and should be used if that is the desired effect. It is usually best to wait until the coldest part of winter has passed. So generally, you know, 
January, beginning of February, you're going to see this cold winter passing, and that's where you might want to think about doing your winter pruning. Summer pruning. To direct the growth by slowing the branches you don't want or to dwarf the development of a tree or branch, pruning should be done soon after seasonal growth is complete. Another reason to prune in the summer is for corrective purposes. Defective limbs can be seen more easily. So if you're wanting to control the growth of your tree, that's when you want to involve summer pruning. Also, if you have difficulty with limbs where they can be seen more easily. Pruning flowering trees to enhance flowering. For trees that bloom in spring, prune when their flowers fade. Trees and shrubs that flower in mid to late summer should be pruned in winter or early spring, so before or well after they flowered, right? When not to prune, fall. So while we plant in the fall, we're not pruning in the fall because decay fungi spread their pores profusely in the fall and wounds seem to heal more slowly on fall cuts. This is a good time to leave your pruning tools in the storage. All right, that is what I really wanted to see. Excellent information there on deciduous and, yes, fruit trees. Now, what about palm trees? How much does that differ, right? Palm trees are a completely different kind of an animal. And so for this piece, we're going to go to, uh, I believe it's a San Francisco document. It's taking it a second to upload. Give it just one moment there. Got all these pieces pulled up. We'll get those down. That should help it uh, upload. I do remember that this was a pretty extensive document. And this, again, is all linked there. This is all free knowledge for anybody with palm trees. Come into Collectively Rewilding. Take a look at all of the various information that's out there for you to care for your palm trees. And this is from the University of Florida. I was thinking California, but it's the University of Florida Master Garden, uh, Master Gardener, Palm Care Made Simple by Dr. Pat Williams. I have never had anything to do with the caring of palm trees. I've definitely been around them, living in Nevada and California, but I've never gotten the opportunity to care for them. So this is something that is totally outside my range of experience. Similar to other types of trees, you want to plant at the correct depth, fertilize on a regular schedule. Now, we haven't really talked too much about that in regards to the other trees. The mulch that you place on the ground as it decomposes is going to be adequate. Perhaps palm trees, uh, with the fact that they grow in a lot of nutrient-deficient soils many times or very uh, processed soils in very manicured areas, they're talking about that fertilizer right at the top. Don't over-prune. So palm trees probably, as I had always kind of suspected, don't need a lot of uh, trimming. Now, I'm guessing that they even have this picture here, the bottoms of these leaves at the very base of the beginning of the branches are brown. And so I would think that, that would probably be one of the few areas there that you would be going to trim or prune. Treat specimens like you want palms to be in Sarasota County in 20 years, so care about them. In other words, no action is better than bad action. That's kind of what I had thought. Palm trees are pretty self-maintaining. I didn't ever see the people out there cutting the trees while we were in California that were the palm trees the same way that you see them cutting the deciduous and fruit trees here in Utah or in Colorado. 
monitor and act on problems. Oh, it's showing you some poor little palm trees. Palms are different. Uh, their external structure, morphology, and anatomy or internal structure are very different from broadleaf or dicot trees. They have unique nutritional needs, and they're propagated from seed, which can be slow and difficult with some species. They're going to go over the anatomy through this article, really gives you some in-depth instruction on their stem structure and all of their anatomy and morphology in general, uh, their external structure. A spear is a new leaf. A frond is a full leaf. An inflorescence is a flower stalk. And there will be leaf scars from old leaves. Interesting. And so when you get into the roots of the palm tree, large diameter roots at the bottom and small fine roots in top six inches. And it really shows that in this picture. It looks very different than the root structure of a deciduous tree. And so you either have a clustering palm like an areca palm or a queen palm that is a single trunk or leader as we were talking about earlier. Christmas palms, they're comparable to the areca palm. They have multiple leaders. And then talks about all the fruiting parts and all that wonderful information, but we're really interested in the planting and the transplanting. So you want to plant at the same level palm was growing in the field or container. So pretty comparable there with um, deciduous and things, but you don't want to plant it too deeply. It says that palms are often planted too deeply. Build a water ring of soil over the root ball to hold irrigation in rain. And then, again, you're going to transplant during the rainy season. They're not talking about fall, per se, but it's still relatively comparable. It does start in June, but it goes through November. And this increases the rate of survival. You need to water daily for 30 days. Keep root ball and surrounding backfill moist, but not saturated, for four to six months after insulation. So again, relatively comparable, but less time. It may take up to one year to become fully established, more comparable to the deciduous trees. Now it's gonna talk about fertilizing these palm trees. Uh, nutritional deficiencies. A deficient leaf will remain that way until it dries or is pruned. Correction requires growth of new non-deficient leaves. So you do have to get rid of that dying or deficient leaf, um, whether you let it fall off or you prune it off. And it may take up to three years to replace your canopy. So you want to try to maintain your trees healthy. Otherwise, it's going to take a while to get it back to full health. The goal is to prevent deficiencies. Yes, definitely. The common nutritional uh, deficiencies are potassium, magnesium, manganese, and boron. Okay. Oh, wow. They do get yellow, don't they? And then they need micro, uh, macro and micronutrients, right? Uh, potassium deficiency is most severe on the oldest or lowest leaves and toward tips. So if you're seeing that browning of the tips, you're probably lower on potassium. Translucent yellow or orange or necrotic spotting of foliage. If you see dead spots on the leaves, that's probably potassium as well. Marginal and or leaflet tip necrosis. So 
If even your new leaves, the leaflet tips, they're going brown due to dust. K deficiency is translucent yellow or orange spotting, and it's easier to see if a uh, leaf is held up to the light. So if you see that yellow or orange spotting when the light's coming through it, you're low on K. Uh, you might also see marginal and tip necrosis on fan palm leaf and necrosis of leaflet tips on feather palms. So it's going to be comparable, but there's some differences. Uh, the browning of the leaves with the potassium, it was on the oldest and towards the tip. Whereas when you're talking about it for K deficiency, it's the leaflet tips, marginal, and tip necrosis on a fan palm leaf. So you're really going to need to find some other cues on whether you need potassium or K. And that's where that testing comes in so heavily that we talked about earlier. Again, you can see necrotic spotting on leaflets, but those were indicative with both deficiencies. And you may see curling or uh, leaf rachis. I'm not sure what that means. Leaf rachis remains green is the last part to become necrotic. So the stem area to the beginning of those leaves, and then it will turn necrotic as well. K-deficiency leaves linger in half-dead state for weeks and months. So it's going to look really ugly for a long time. If you see it, that probably means that it's already been deficient for a while. If the trunk is tapering and becoming more like a pencil instead of a solid, steady tapering, that's K-deficiency. And fewer leaves in the canopy than normal for that palm species. Now, with magnesium deficiency, you'll see a central part of leaflets or leaf segments remain distinctly green, no necrosis of leaf tissue. So they look healthier. It almost looks like they're variegated, but they're not. That's not what you want to see. Um, the yellowing with still solid green centers, that is the magnesium, and it does look distinctly different. All right, and finally, manganese. This is going to affect the youngest leaves only and more severe at leaf base than the leaf tips. Intervenal chlorosis with necrotic streaking, withering or frizzling of leaflet or leaf segment tips, and death of the bud are all deficiency with manganese. So it is quite different. It has the necrosis look, but it's veined, okay? So how do you fix these things? Insufficient nutrients in the soil, nutrients unavailable due to the pH or phosphates or organic material, nutrient imbalance, okay? So when you have a balanced mixture, uh, you're going to see K, Mg or magnesium, uh, manganese and boron. So potassium, manganese, Oh, my goodness, these words. Where did the other one go? I had it right here in my mouth, and then it disappeared on me. Magnesium. Manganese and magnesium. Those are a little bit hard to keep separated on the tongue when you don't say them all the time. Um, 
you'll want to check for these components. Application of the appropriate fertilizer will not correct the leaf symptoms already present. You have to let those new leaves grow out. A big difference, I think, for palm trees. Fertilization is targeted at new leaves developing in the bud and emerging. Okay, so in turf, you commonly see nitrogen and Fe. Let's find out what that one is. F, capital Fe on the periodic table. So that's a type of iron, okay? Let's check and make sure we don't have any collars and we're good to go. So nitrogen and a type of iron, uh, that's also comparable with broadleaf trees and shrubs if you have those mixed in with your palm trees, as well as manganese and magnesium and potassium. So the palms tend to have nitrogen, iron, manganese, magnesium, potassium, and boron. An integrated approach to fertilizing landscapes. So that's something that we talk about all the time. All types of plants growing in the same deficient soil. Palm and tree roots coexist with turf roots. Products applied to turf can be harmful to palm and trees. Simplify fertilization. So you have to consider all the other types of plants when you're considering palms. It's something that I don't think about very often because I very rarely live in areas where there are palms. It's not a part of what I think about. Um, fertilizer must have appropriate ratio of nitrogen, potassium, and magnesium. Contain correct components, must release at the same rate, be applied correctly, and be applied in adequate amounts. If you can't use the correct fertilizer, fertilizer it is better to use no fertilizer at all near palm, okay? And so these are all really, really important elements, and it says palm fertilizers are not created equal, and there's a link here to go into it so that you can go into the right components, which they are saying is 8 to 12 for magnesium with micronutrients or 8 0 12 for magnesium with micronutrients. So it gets really specific with palm trees. So definitely something that you want to look into really strongly, and I don't have a lot of familiarity, so I'm not going to try to talk about that part with you guys. Just to caution you, make sure that you're really doing your research when you're looking into fertilizing your palm trees. And it's saying that you need to fertilize turf within 50 feet of any palm, so that's where the palm roots are located. 50 feet, they're going to go out. And you need to be careful. Fertilizers are potential surface and groundwater pollutants. Again, if you can't use the correct fertilizer, it is better to use no fertilizer at all near palm. Applying an ineffective fertilizer is a waste of money and time and a source of water pollution. All right, let's look and see if there's anything else that we really want to cover about palms while we're here. Pruning is definitely something that we should talk about. Palms should have 360 degrees of canopy. Okay, this can only be achieved with correct fertilization and pruning. If you have a excessive pruning, it's going to affect your vigor, nutritional health, and cold hardiness, and it can transmit diseases. Again, it looks like you don't want to take away the lower leaves or palms on your 
uh, fronds, excuse me, on your palm trees, it's going to probably burn them. If you cut half of it away, not good. The pineapple cut, they're saying it is not a good idea. They want to see those palm fronds coming down. They don't want to see them only sprouting up from the top. So you want a nice 360, just like they said, not 180, not 90, a full 360 degrees of your palm fronds. If nutrient deficiency, if nutrient deficiencies exist, never remove any leaves that are not completely dead. You need to wait until they are completely dead. If no deficiencies exist and palm has a full canopy, remove no more healthy leaves than will be produced during the interval between pruning and preferably less. So you want to see it slowly get a little thicker and a little thicker. Never remove any living leaves originating above the horizontal plane, uh, horizontal plane, nine o'clock to three o'clock position. Pruning palms, remove completely dead fronds, fruit and flower stalks. Can remove living flower or fruit stalks if desired. Hurricane cuts are not appropriate pruning techniques. And then it has a bunch of excellent Pictures going over what to do and not to do. Again, these will all be posted in Collectively Rewilding, www.collectivelyrewilding.com. If leaves are partially damaged from the cold, they should stay on the palm until new leaves form. What to remove? If deficiencies exist, remove only dead leaves. R-O-B, remove only brown. If you must remove leaves, meaning they're not dead, Never remove above the horizontal nine o'clock and three o'clock positions on a clock. Removal of leaves causes damage to structures. What to remove? Hurricane pruning is a myth. Trees are meant to deal with the weather. Don't try to prune your trees before a hurricane. All right, acceptable to trim flowers and fruits. How to remove? Cut leaf places close but not into trunks. So when they're dead, you want to cut them, or if you're pruning below the nine and three positions on a clock, cut leaf bases close, but not into trunk. Do not pull or tear leaves off. Sterilize tools between each palm, especially Canary Island date palms. Okay, it looks like there's some key pests. The insects are palm leaf skeletonizer, palmetto weevil, Asian uh Cycad scale, palm aphid. Diseases are Fusarium wilt, Ganoderma butt rot, that doesn't sound pleasant. Phytoplasma diseases are lethal yellowing and lethal bronzing. And this has a various overview of all of these different problems and uh, then management for those problems. Focus on what you can control, the nutrition, pruning correctly. There is no perfect palm, and diversify your landscape. So that was really interesting. I definitely learned a lot. I really have no experience, as I said, with palm trees. Really excellent, excellent information. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, successfully pruning evergreen trees. Again, a totally different type of tree structure. This is from the Virginia Cooperative Extension. 
And it goes into that anatomy of an evergreen tree. Evergreen trees have leaves that persist year-round and include most conifers and some broadleaf trees. Evergreen trees generally need less pruning than deciduous trees. So evergreens and palms are less than deciduous trees. Conifers are distinguished from other plants by their neater, needle or scale-like leaves and their seed-bearing cones. Because common, uh, conifers have dominant leaders, remember, uh, young trees rarely require training type pruning. So they're going to have a dominant leader. They're not going to have multiple trunks. The leader is the vertical stem at the top of the trunk. Okay, so that gets a little more specific. That's more helpful to me than the previous uh, description. So when we're going to see that notching, those crotches, that's going to be with the leaders at the vertical stem at the top of the trunk. If a young tree has two leaders, prune one prevent multiple leader development. Selective branch removal is generally unnecessary as evergreens tend to have wide angles of attachment to the trunk. And it talks about how to remove those multiple leaders. Evergreens are grouped on the basis of their branch arrangement. Pines, spruces, and firs have whorled branches that form a circular pattern around the growing tip. The annual growth of a whorl branch conifer is determined by the number of shoots that are preformed in the buds. Wow, that's a little bit above my uh, experience. I have definitely dealt with evergreen maintenance. And again, like the palm trees, less is more. And so I haven't gone into it in any significant amount. I was going to have to if we would have kept our home up in Wyoming because we had some branches dying off. We had a fir, a pine, and a spruce really kind of interesting. It was a pretty little patch of trees. World branch conifers usually have only one flush of growth each year in which these preformed shoots expand into stems that form the next whorl. Okay, interesting. It's as it grows out as a branch, each new season will produce a new level of whorls on the branch. Very pretty. What to prune? Corrective pruning for evergreen trees consists mainly of dead, diseased, or damaged branch removal, much like with the palm trees. Remove dead wood promptly by cutting dead branches back to healthy branches. When pruning diseased branches, make thinning cuts into healthy wood well below the infected area. Thinning cuts remove branches back to their points of origin or attachment. Disinfect tools between each cut with products such as Lysol, Listerine, or rubbing alcohol. Tests have shown that pine saw and household bleach are highly corrosive to metal tools. Allow evergreen trees to grow in their natural form. You're not trying to create a bonsai. It needs to grow in its natural shaping. Don't prove into the inactive center. No needles or leaves attached of world branch conifers because new branches won't, won't form to conceal the stubs. So once you cut it off, it's not going to keep growing out. When a tree's leader is lost due to storm damage or disease, replace it by splinting to a vertical position, the upper lateral on the highest branch. Prune all laterals immediately below the new leader. Use wood or flexible wire splints, removing them after one growing season. Okay, so you can almost bonsai-like create a new main leader if you have it break off. How to prune. Do not prune branches flush to the trunk. Flush cutting is harmful in several ways. It damages bark as pruning tools rub against the trunk. It removes, it removes the branch collar and it goes behind the branch bark 
ridge. The branch collar is the swollen area of trunk tissue that forms around the base of a branch. The branch bark ridge is a line of rough bark running from the branch trunk crotch into the trunk, uh, trunk bark, less prominent on some trees than on others. The best pruning cut is made outside the branch collar, so outside that bulb that forms, at a 45 to 60 degree angle to the branch bark ridge. Leave the branch collar intact to quickly heal the wound and help prevent decay from entering the trunk. Whenever removing branches greater than one inch in diameter, use the three cut method to avoid tearing bark. First, about 12 inches from the trunk, cut halfway through the limb from the underside. Second, about one inch past the first cut, and that's towards your tree, not outwards, uh, cut through the limb from the top side. The limb's weight will cause it to break between the two cuts. Make the third cut outside the branch collar as described in publication, and it's linked here for you, and they have some nice pictures. So basically, that first cut is a deep notch upwards, and then your second cut is going to be actually just past that one. I'm wrong. It is just past that. And then it's going to break in between those two points. At that point, you're left with this stub. You want to cut it off right outside that bulb that we talked about. Don't cut, don't coat pruning cuts with tree paint or wound dressing. Coatings won't prevent decay or promote wound closure and may actually prevent wounds from healing. Pines and other whorl branched conifers become denser if new growing tips, candles, are pinched in half as they expand in the spring. Pinch by hand as pruning shears will cut the expanding needles and leave them with brown tips. When to prune. Most evergreen pruning is done for corrective reasons, just like with the palm. So seasonal timing is not as important as it is for deciduous species. Pruning during dormancy is the most common practice and will result in a vigorous burst of spring growth. Whenever unexpected damage from vandalism or bad weather occurs, prune immediately. Whenever, if you get an unexpected heavy summer storm and there's some damage, go ahead and correct it with the pruning. There are, however, certain evergreen pruning activities for specific times of the year. Prune random branched conifers in early spring when new growth will cover the pruning wound. Candles of world branched, world branched conifers should be pinched back in mid to late spring. That's what we talked about just a moment ago. Maintenance pruning of random branched conifers is done in summer to keep plants within a desired size range, not shaping, but size range. Remove spent flowers of evergreen magnolias at the end of their blooming se season to stimulate new growth and development of a thicker crown. During the winter, minor pruning for decorating purposes usually causes no harm. So if you need to prune a little bit because you're going to put out some winter decorations, some lights or something, you'll probably be okay if you just cut a little bit. Whenever possible, avoid pruning evergreen trees in late summer and early fall. Pruning at this time can stimulate new growth that may not harden off before winter and thus may be damaged or killed by the cold. And then they have some further detailed information. So some really great pieces there. Yes, deciduous trees are going to need some pruning. Evergreens and palms, only for those um, dead and dying parts, and especially on a palm, don't remove it at all if it's living, right? All right, everybody. 
really interesting information. Um, most of the trees that I have been around have been not completely properly cared for, and unfortunately, I wasn't there long enough to do it myself. I think that tree maintenance is something that a lot of landowners are really scared of, but it really is approachable. And with these horrid Siberian elms, because they are not native and they are so messy, native trees that are messy, hey, that's putting those nutrients right back into the soil where you need. And of course, yes, the messiness from these Siberian elms puts nutrients back. You want those nutrients. It's not a desirable tree here. Um, so I hacked the heck out of them during my summer growing season because I really didn't care if it did some minor damage to them. But we really want to be careful with those trees we want to uh, keep and maintain. And as we're putting in our native tree species, we want to learn about the pruning and care for those species right then and refresh that for ourselves a little bit every year or so until we really have a solid understanding how to best care for our trees. One of the things that I'm still not sure about, I heard out of a very well-known documentary, I believe it's called Garden of Eden. It's been over 10 years since I watched it, where a gentleman is talking about going back to the more natural or uh, forest ideology. And he cuts his trees back really heavily. And just, it blows my mind. Um, let me see if I can find that documentary for you. And if anybody has any knowledge of how this goes, I would love to hear about it. I saw a tree that they did that with here in Utah, and it was more of a desert tree. And it did work just brilliantly. The tree was glorious in the summer. And they had cut that tree back, every single branch on it, just sheared it off and it came back just gloriously but that is where you start getting into some terrifying territory as far as I'm concerned I did find that documentary it's back to Eden not Garden of Eden back to Eden gardening documentary film you can find it on YouTube I highly recommend uh watching it it's excellent and I do want to practice with the style of gardening that they are talking about. All right, folks, I am getting a call and it could possibly be from one of the USDA sources that I'm working with here in Utah. So let's go ahead and listen to natural fertilizer. Gardener here, and we are getting fish emulsion. This is what it is. It's sludge, really, the best explanation for it. There, it's a broken down material that was in Luke's pond. Luke put point over there. That's Luke's pond, just on their patio, and we scooped out this. This was full of water when we started. We didn't even think to record until now, until I brought it up to Luke. So we've been straining it, and um this nylon stocking here 
And then we have cheesecloth over that. Just a thin layer because we're starting to get holes within here from all the just little particles like sticks get, would get in there and poke holes. So we did that to keep as much in here as we can. And what it is, see all this black stuff down in there? Those are called, what do you call them, bioparticles? Biosolids. Bios. Biosolids. They're just broken down leaves like this. And I'll even show you exactly what this is. This leaf, it's been broken down. You can see every vein. Show them one of the leaves leaf. that fell in there like this year, over there, like the whole ones, where it's oh, hasn't, where the microorganisms ha haven't broken down the leaf yet. Okay. This is how the leaf starts. You know, you can't see all the veins. This is how it ends. Actually, these are two put together. You can see right through it. Yeah, it's, it's like literally a see-through leaf. And all you can see is the veins. It's pretty sweet. Here, but yeah, all this black stuff is just like uh, fish fish uh, feces, fish food, uh, we had frog, fish pond, frog right? poop, um, bird poop. Yes, we did have fish in there. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And microorganisms that just break down leaves and stuff. And that's what you get is this wonderful, I call it black gold. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to continue straining this. We'll get back to when we have, like, a large quantity. And what we do is we strain it off, and anything that's left that's too small, we strain into this bucket, and then, we'll, and then we'll pour it on our plants over there, and our plants over there, and our plants over there, and usually the whole garden, actually. This so. is the water that's coming out. This is how well we're straining. That black stuff you just saw in the bucket is coming out as clear water. I mean, it's it's like bottle water clear. And this is going to save us a ton of money because we're going to go to the store and buy fish emulsion. And fish emulsion has really gone up in price. I uh, looked at a bottle at, the lo at our local aquaponics store, and it's about, well, depending on the grade of fish emulsion that you get, you can have like grade A, which is super fine, broken down specific particles, or you can have like grade D, which is your regular average, like when they go to people's houses to clean out ponds, they'll pump it into tanks and then they'll take it to their place and clean out the biosolids. And that's about, uh, for like a 16 ounce bottle of it, it's about $5 including tax. And, and then for like a 16 ounce, like one pound bottle of it of uh, like grade A, it's about ten dollars, not including tax. So, yeah, it's pretty expensive stuff, and we're making it for free here. So, just remember, if you guys have a pond like this that's been sitting around for a while, and it's above a tree, you're in luck. Just scoop it out from the bottom. Get like all the bottom stuff. See, these are all the nasty leaves, and yes, they do stink. So, I probably shouldn't be touching them, but. Anyways, that is the way we are doing that right now. This we'll, is three-year-old three, three -year -old sludge. Yeah, three-year-old sludge. So we'll update you when we get a ton of it. Okay, so this is how much we have after the 50-gallon bucket worth, the black bucket that we showed you before. This is, probably, this is about softball size, a little bit bigger. Actually, a lot bigger. It's 18 gallons. Oh, it's 18 gallons? Yeah. Oh, you had told me 50, but... I thought it was 50. This is how big <laughs> it is. This is my hand. I do have little hands, but it's my hand for reference, so... It's as big as 
a little bit bigger than a official size softball. So, what we're also doing is we're now going to, ooh, that's dirty water, that's not good. <laughs> we're also going to strain this water into these one gallon milk jugs because we're going to water our plants with the water. So that'd be great. So it's kind of the same thing as compost tea. So we're going to do Don't another... <laughs> We're gonna do another 18 gallon. Got uh, another one. Bucket thing, and we're gonna show you how much we have after that. It might be double this, so. So this is what we have. Uh, Bree raise up the thing because it's kind of dark bucket. Okay, so we have that after 36, 36 gallons of the sludge waste stuff. I don't know. It's like pond water. What else would you call it? <laughs> and then that is after 18. So we're going to combine those two and we'll get back with you. Alright YouTube, so this is what we end up with. After a couple hours of being covered in sludge, basically. We have fish emulsion. This stuff is expensive in the stores, like Luke said. You get the grade A stuff, which we're classifying this as pretty much grade A because this pond, it's been three years since this pond has been thoroughly cleaned out. So, and it has fish in there for three years, so we're classifying this as grade A fish emulsion. We added some water to keep the microorganisms alive, but we ended up with a gallon of it. At the store, you could pay a fortune, but we got this for free. So it's pretty nice. So now we're going to take this and we're going to go put it around our plant. We're also going to take this water down here that we had filtered. Uh, we kept some and gave some to uh, the neighbor who's got a garden of her own. And we're going to keep this and we're going to water our plants with it. So it's pretty much like compost tea. So that's it. This is a great way for you to get your fish emulsion for your plants. And it's a fantastic way to keep them healthy. So if you like this video, just click the little, click the little thumbs up button, the like button. And always remember to rate, comment, and subscribe this video. And everything else. But thanks. Bye. Alright. So, if you have access to a pond, that's definitely an excellent way to gain some free, fantastic fertilizer for your crops. Alright. So, we only have about 15 minutes left here. One of the things that I was working on since I wasn't able to get out into the garden, were the mission and vision statement for my business plan. And so what I've come up with is for a mission statement, dive into nature's wonders with Collectively Rewilding, a vibrant online community for learning and sharing. Explore courses, feeds, and more, all tailored to deepen your connection with the natural world. And your mission statement a lot of times is uh, – used in advertising. Your vision statement can be as well. It's usually a one to two sentence interest driver, much like what you would put at the beginning of a speech. Now for the vision statement, we have to grow the most accessible and engaging social media platform where individuals and families reconnect with nature and inspire each other to embrace a rewilding lifestyle, build thriving communities and drive positive change. And so your mission statement is what you are and your vision statement is what you're striving to be or what you intend to be. And so 
that's where I'll be working over the next couple of weeks along with my move is that business plan so that I can enter those classes for marketing and advertising. And then we'll go into actually marketing and advertising with the $3,000 grant that I receive. It's going to be very interesting. It's something I'm very nervous about. I really am not a salesperson. I definitely can sell somebody that's interested things all day, no problem, but I am not good about force feeding people things they don't want to buy. I don't believe in it. So I'm going to have to find some balance within my marketing and advertising because as we're all very aware, our culture loves to force feed us products. They want us buying, buying, buying entrepreneurially. And I don't believe in that. I want this to be the type of place that you get more than your value. And the, the whole idea is to allow those of us who have had experience in the natural world, who do know about the ways to work towards maintaining sustainability, right? That's all a practice that we're employing. There is no standardized methods yet. Um, all of these things to share that with those who either have different skill sets or no skill sets in the natural world at all, to share that love of the world, of the environment, and all of the different regions. It would be wonderful eventually to go global. But right now, of course, we're focusing on the United States, and there's so much variety within even the contiguous United States. But especially once you go into Hawaii, Alaska, and the territories, there is a tremendous amount of variety in our own little uh, yes, a little bit colonized world. Um, I think of it so often in regards to that. I think that we're trying to go away from that entire mentality, right? And we want to explore those regions as native regions and stop trying to model other areas. We want to model what should be. We want to model sustainability. We want to model plants that will foster the pollinators and the local wildlife and return our soils to a more natural state. That's all a big part of what collectively rewilding is. Together, sharing what we've all learned, what we're all passionate about, so that others can employ and share that and just grow this movement that really as we talked about in a previous show, started in the late 1800s. People were already starting to feel a separation from their environment that long ago. So this is an ongoing thing. We haven't really ever stopped once this thought process got out there. It just gets more and more entrenched into our practices, our daily lives, our thought processes. More and more we care about how we're interacting with our environment. And I think that is just one of the most beautiful parts of modern society, and I hope that we see it more and more. I really like the way that Gerard Kenyatta Hay talks about it with uh, Greening the West Texas Desert, where he talks about all of us coming back to a more natural state outside of, yes, hubs of mechanization. We've gone to a place where we will want to manufacture certain levels, even if we do return to a more overall sustainable global society, have small centers for uh, manufacturing and things, and then the rest of us outside of those centers living in larger patches of ground, 
acreage, four, five, six, seven acres, and trying to have a more natural environment around us, going away from all of the concrete and skyscrapers and nights that are filled with artificial light, all of these different things as individuals and families and learning to utilize our gray water, to capture rainwater, to have passive heating and cooling, to return to older forms of building that retained heat and retained the cool, depending on what time of year it was. All of these pieces are what we want to rediscover together in Collectively Rewilding. And that's what we're trying to uh, convey with a mission and a vision statement. And so when I'm working on my next pieces, I will be working on the goals and objectives of Collective Lawyer Wilding, a lot of those things we just talked about right there. The history, it's only about three and a half years, but there's still significant points that have happened, including taking on this radio show. That's a big piece for fall, summer of 2023. And then a business description. And the business description is going to take a little bit more time. You have to give a very broad overview. It may even include your mission or vision statement. It includes an overview of your products and services and your overall business. It's a big piece. And so that's what I'll be working on next. And then I need to work on the uh, management and organization, which is really easy. It's myself working with the social media platform. I have to go over the products and services. And then there's one other piece of the business plan that I can do by myself. And that is the operating plan. And then at that point, that's where I really have to work with my SBDC counselor, this class that's going to happen in January about marketing and advertising. I have to do a cash flow statement and um, income projections, all these different pieces. And that's where I struggle. And that's why when I talk to you guys, encouraging you to broaden your own horizons, start your own natural-based business, I encourage you to talk with these SBDC, America's Small Business Development Centers, the counselors there, because anything that you don't know, they can help you with. They can find classes for you, generally that are free or extremely low cost. They have helped me in so many ways. I can't even begin to describe them. I changed my business from just quick draw editing services to having collectively rewilding in the first place, in large part because of the mentorship from the SBDC. Simply an amazing resource that's available to all of us here in this country. All right, everybody. So let's just go over briefly what we're going to talk about next week. And then we will close off with a piece from Gerard since we brought him up. Let's see. Do we have a small enough one? Yes. We'll talk about why he left unsociety, as he calls it. I think that's one of his best pieces. And I think it speaks to a lot of us who are in the mentality or ideology of collectively rewilding. So next week's show is going to talk about getting children out into the garden. That is so important. Children today have no connection to their food, to what healthy food is, to the understanding of how much 
work and enjoyment comes from growing and raising food. And so that is a big part of my thought process when it comes to education and these environmental topics is every single level of our society. I want adults to come in and share what they know and gain from other adults, as well as teaching our college age and high school children into our elementary school children, and even younger when it's a family setting and handled in an appropriate fashion. Children can be out in the garden before they have the words to say garden. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about bringing gardening into the schools and how effective that's been, um, how many different areas you can cover gardening in the classroom, how it can be brought into just about any subject. When we talked in our first or second uh, show here, we talked about the real basis for civilization or community is food and how we gather it, grow it, maintain it, preserve it, cook it, and consume it. That was the basis for the coming together of humanity. So you can take it into any topic within a classroom. Really amazing how much engagement you will get from students that generally you can't engage at all when you take them into a natural environment. You may reach a child as a teacher that you had considered lost and not necessarily given up on. You still try with those children, but when you can't reach a child, you can't reach a child. And if you're having trouble reaching a child, whether it's your own, a student, uh, if you're a caregiver for children, try bringing the natural world into reaching these children. And I can almost guarantee you a better success rate than you're having already. We're also going to talk about setting up community gardens, the types, grants that may be out there for you, grant-like opportunities, creating a committee and community involvement. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about getshipdrops.com. All right, everybody, we'll close out now with Gerard Kenyatehe greening the West Texas desert. Good morning. My name is Gerard. Um, I've never done an intro video. I don't think I have. So, you know, I do have social media um, content on different platforms, but I've never really just stopped and talked about why I moved off grid and what I'm doing. So it's just a quick statement intro welcome appreciate you joining me on my journey i won't convince you that i'm the best video maker content person funny knows what he's doing i'm an automation engineer well i was uh climbed into management realized that this is not the place for me this is not what i want to do i don't think i'm working for the right people i realized that we have the automation and the ability to feed and house everybody on this planet so uh, I escaped that system. I believe in seeing problems and fixing them. And I do believe moving off grid and exodus from the system is a good idea. I absolutely will not be getting into politics in any way, shape, or form on this channel. Um, I have other social media where I get into politics, if that's what you like. Um, I'm more anti-political than anything. I don't think centralized power is a great idea. And that's the most I'll ever say here. This channel is for living off grid me learning. I moved out here by myself out here in the wilds of West Texas is pretty much as far from people as I could get. 
um, within a comfort zone of about an hour of a Home Depot. And that's really what you want to do. And not really a Home Depot, hardware store better if you can find one. I'm not anti-Home Depot, but we need to get away from centralized everything. We need to diversify a little bit more. The only way we'll exist on this planet is if we are spread out, not consolidated into cities, uh, living in sync with the land, restoring the, the ecosystems we've destroyed through desertification and all the other things that we've done, which is part of why I'm out here. I've got three projects that I'm working on. One was living off grid. Could I move out to a piece of raw land, build a place to live, a homestead, and become sustainable? And I'm about 90-some percent done with that project. Um, I am sustainable. I could say 100%, but I, I won't. I, I, I don't... Um, I want I want to make sure I've got some checks and balances for the water system, but in terms of food, housing, safety, security, all of that, I've already done that. Um, uh, the next part of this process, though, is greening the desert. You know, taking a, a piece of des desertified land that we've destroyed through various means. I, you know, like I said, I, I, everyone has a different idea of how we took uh, dry lands and turned them into deserts, but. Uh, I, I don't like to point fingers, you know, in anything. I, I simply like to solve problems. So turning this dry piece of land back into a, a, a dry land forest, if you will, you know, something that uh, I think the Native Americans in this area said, uh, this place used to be full of grasslands, and now it's full of rock and caliche and dust. So um, – Greening the desert is, is, is a big portion of it, you know, putting in my fruit orchards, putting in trees, doing earthworks and swales to make sure that they are automatically watered when it rains, that their roots go deep enough that they can be sustained without me or anybody else watering them. And the last portion is auto automation, you know, and this goes back to me being an automation engineer. I believe, you know, the only way we're really going to help restore this planet back to the way it used to be before we became so foolish is automation. We're going to need green drones. We don't need drones dropping bombs anymore. And just, just my opinion. Uh, that's, again, that's as most as political as, it is, as I'm going to be here. You're just going to hear just general statements, nothing specific. Um, but we need green drones. We need drones that help the human race. We need to start using technology to help people live better lives instead of fighting each other over economic systems that have been deployed all over this planet that don't work with this planet nor work with us that are designed to keep a lot of us on the bottom and very few on the top it's not a good idea so restoring eden uh but we're that's a good place to end there see you next week bye everyone Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.